Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This is episode 274, and I'm recording it on Sunday, October 11th, 2020, starting at 5.34 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the concept of sect, which is the difference between day and night charts, and uh, a technical distinction that's used to differentiate people that were born during the day versus people that were born at night. So um, I'm doing this uh, in front of an audience of patrons and students of the Hellenistic Astrology course. Thanks everybody who joined me today on short notice. This is kind of unique because it's a solo episode. Usually I'm talking to somebody, um, but I decided to do this one as a solo episode because it's more of a lecture and I have a lot of like PowerPoint slides and it wouldn't make as much sense as a dialogue, but I'm hoping to get some good questions still from people in the audience. So for those of you that are looking for like a really brief, concise introduction to the concept of sect, uh, I would recommend looking at my older video where I did like a five or ten minute quick overview of sect a few years ago, and I'll link to that probably in the description below this video on YouTube. Um, this video instead is going to be much more of a deep dive into the concept of sect. It's still going to be a broad overview or introduction in a sense, but I'm probably going to talk for like an hour and a half or two hours here so that we're really going to give you a relatively solid introduction to the concept. All right, so without out of the way, let's jump right into it. So the title of this talk provisionally is Sect in Astrology, Day and Night Charts. I gave a version of this lecture a few years ago at the Northwest Astrology Conference. Um, but one of the things I realized last month when Lisa Scheim and I did a Q&A and one of the main questions that we asked was about the concept of sect, and one of the questions was, you know, how do you know when it becomes a day chart versus a night chart? I realized there was still some basic unfamiliarity with this concept, even though we use it on the podcast all the time and it's something I talk about in my book and my courses. I've never really done a good introductory episode on this topic. So that's the purpose of, of this talk, and that's why I'm doing it as part of the astrology podcast series, as part of my ongoing sort of commitment to educating people in the astrological community and bringing some of these ancient astrological techniques forward into the present time. All right, so day and night. Um, this is one of the most fundamental astronomical distinctions that we're all familiar with and we all know about, and we have some really deep, immediate, and practical day-to-day -day exposure with where you wake up in the morning, you you go outside, and you can experience what it's like to be um, living in the world during the day. Versus at some point in the evening, the sun sets and it's nighttime, and the sun goes away. And if there's any luminary out, it's the moon, which is providing light uh, at that time. So this is a really fundamental astronomical distinction that we're all familiar with, that we all experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and yet, one of the funny things is it's not really a concept that's used that much in modern astrology. There isn't really a concept of what's it mean for somebody to be born in, during the day or to be born at night. So what's weird about that is it turns out over the course of the past 30 years, astrologers started going back and they started translating ancient texts. And one of the first things that they found was that um, it turns out in the ancient Western astrological traditions, they actually did have an interpretive distinction of day charts versus night charts. And it made a huge difference in how they would interpret certain placements just simply based on if a person was born during a day 
or if the person was born at night. So this was an ancient technical concept that existed and was a cornerstone of ancient and to some extent medieval astrology even, but eventually over time it sort of dropped out of the tradition unfortunately for reasons that I'll get into later. Um, it was really important though because it turns out in all ancient astrological texts when they would delineate different placements, they would often provide two different interpretations for if the person was born during the day or at night. So in that way it was um, really structurally crucial in terms of um, how to interpret a birth chart. So it was a really important technique. So I'm going to give just a very broad overview of sect in this talk. I'm going to spend the first bit of the talk talking about why it's important and how it's crucial in astrology as a foundational concept. And then I'm going to um, go into some example charts and talk about how it actually works out in practice and some of the core things that you can do with the concept of sect that make it a really useful addition to modern astrology. All right, so here's the basic distinction. Um, in ancient Greek, in the ancient Greek astrological tradition called Hellenistic astrology, the technical term for this concept is heresis, which means a faction or a party, like a political party or a school of thought or even a religious sect. And most translators have translated this term as the concept of sect, like referring to a, a religious sect or like a religious group of people who follow or adhere to a certain doctrine. More recently, there's been some translators that translate the Greek term as a party, as in like a political party. Like, for example, in the United States, you have the two main political parties, which are like the Republicans and the Democrats. You can kind of think of the concept of sect as kind of similar in that it divides the chart into two teams. There is a daytime team, which is led by the sun, and there is a nighttime team, which is led by the moon. So think about it in terms of that of two. Um, political parties or two religious sects where there's a daytime sect and there's a nighttime sect, and each one um, has a luminary or one of the givers of light as its party leader or as its sect leader, which we refer to as the sect light. So once you establish the two teams, which are the daytime or the diurnal team, and the nocturnal or the nighttime team, then you pick, you have your sect light, which is the luminary that leads that sect, which is the sun is the leader of the daytime team and the moon is the leader of the nighttime team. Then the ancient astrologers assigned one benefic and one malefic to each team. So Jupiter and Saturn were assigned to the daytime team. Jupiter is the benefic that's associated with the daytime team and Saturn is the malefic associated with the daytime team. Then on the nighttime team, we have again one benefic and one malefic. We have Venus as the nighttime benefic and Mars as the malefic that's assigned to the nighttime team. Mercury is neutral and he's not inherently assigned to either the daytime or the nighttime team, but instead he can kind of go between or join any team depending on how he's situated uh, or how they are situated in the chart. Um, for considerations that we're not going to go into. Mercury isn't super important in sect. It mainly comes down to the other planets, and Mercury is sort of a neutral player, so to speak. All right, so sect shows up 
pretty much everywhere in ancient astrology and is definitely a foundational concept. So um, I'll show some diagrams to illustrate some of these points, but basically to list just a few of the core places where sect shows up in ancient astrology. It shows up in the domicile assignment scheme, it shows up in the planetary joys, the exaltations, the triplicity rulers, it even shows up in most of the lot calculations like the lot or most people know it as the part of fortune. It also shows up in some more advanced techniques and concepts and calculations such as the concept of the master of the nativity as well as some timing techniques such as annual perfections and zodiac releasing. So all of that is just to say that this is not a minor technique or concept, that sect is actually a core foundational concept which even though it fell out or came into disuse and was sort of forgotten by the time you get to um, Renaissance and especially modern astrology, even though the concept disappeared and knowledge of it was lost and not passed down as part of the tradition, um, it doesn't really matter because it was already built, built into or baked into the core techniques of Western astrology to such an extent that we are already kind of using it anyways, even though we didn't realize it. So part of the purpose of this is, is coming back into a realization of how core this concept or technique is, um, even though we've lost touch with it, and seeing why it's important to recognize um, its pivotal uh, role in the system once again today. All right, so here's the domicile scheme. So using the traditional rulership scheme, the ancient astrologers first um, assigned the sun and the moon to the two signs of the zodiac falling, following the summer solstice. So the moon to Cancer, which is a feminine sign, so they assigned it to the moon, which was conceptualized as a feminine planet, and then they assigned the sun to Leo, and Leo is supposed to be a masculine sign, so they assigned it to a masculine planet, the sun. Um, there's also a hermetic text that was rediscovered recently as part of Abu Mashar that says that the Sun was assigned to 15 degrees of Leo because that's the height of the summer and that's the height of the sun's sort of light and warmth and heat. So there was like a, a conceptual and specifically a tropical rationale for assigning the sun to Leo and then the rest of the planets um, flanking out in zodiacal order. So, anyway, one of the things that you can notice and that's talked about in some astrologers is that they drew a dividing line between the sun and the moon. And then they assigned each of the traditional visible planets in zodiacal order flanking out from the sun and the moon. And they basically divided the zodiac into two hemispheres where there was a solar hemisphere on the right side, or a diurnal hemisphere you might say, and then there was a, a lunar or a nocturnal hemisphere on the left. And what you end up with then is sort of like a mirror image where you get um, the planets based on the relative speed and distance going out in zodiacal order in their assignment to the signs. So first starting with Mercury, which is assigned to Virgo on the diurnal side and Gemini on the lunar side or nocturnal side. Then Venus is the next furthest and slowest planet and it gets assigned to Libra and to Taurus. Then Mars gets assigned to Scorpio and Aries, Jupiter to Sagittarius and Pisces. And finally, Saturn to Capricorn and Aquarius. So you end up with a nocturnal and a diurnal side of the zodiac, and each of the planets 
gets assigned to one masculine and one feminine sign, or another way of saying that is one nocturnal and one diurnal sign. So there's this sense of an attempt to create a sort of balance between those um, so that each planet has like a masculine or a diurnal expression or a feminine or nocturnal expression, even though diurnal and nocturnal are not completely overlapping with the gender sort of binaries, but there is a connection between them to some extent. All right, so that's one way in which sect is sort of built into the basic structure of Western astrology through the rulership scheme, basically. In other areas, though, even the aspect doctrine, there seemed to have been some notion that the sun, and this is probably tied into ancient optical theories where they had some ideas about how vision worked and this notion that either um, in order to see something, either a beam was emitted from the eye and would like strike an object in order to see it, or that an object would emit some sort of beam that would then be received for the, by the eye in order to see or be able to fully grasp visually some, some thing. And I think the ancient astrologers integrated this into the traditional rulership scheme through this notion that the sun emits beams or emits light and the moon receives light. And this is sort of shows up in the aspect doctrine through the idea of overcoming aspects which are sent forward or emitted forward in zodiacal order. And those are superior aspects, which are the ones on the right side on the solar side with the sun versus the inferior aspects which are received by a planet that is later in zodiacal order, which would match up with the moon on the left side in the lunar hemisphere. So that's a little complicated to get into because it gets into differences between superior versus inferior and all sorts of complicated things about the aspect doctrine. But I just wanted to point out that it's probably part of the original rationale for the doctrine of inferior versus superior aspects, or in other words, right versus left-sided aspects. It has to do with the concept of sect again. Um, additionally, another concept, the concept of exaltations, where each of the planets is said to be exalted in certain signs of the zodiac. There's been some, for about 2,000 years now, there's been some uncertainty about where this concept came from, and it's just been passed down as part of the tradition that, for example, the sun is exalted in Aries, the moon is exalted in Taurus, Venus in Pisces, Jupiter in Cancer, Mars in Capricorn, Saturn in Libra, and Mercury in Virgo. Well, it turns out there is actually a rationale for this concept that's been recently recovered through translations of ancient texts such as Antiochus and Porphyry, and the rationale actually partially has to do with the concept of sect. So, according to Porphyry, uh, astrologer who lived in like the third or fourth century, all of the diurnal or daytime planets, when they're in their signs of exaltation, are configured to one of their domiciles, so the signs that they rule, uh, that they're the traditional ruler of, by a trine aspect. So, for example, the sun, when it's exalted in Aries, is configured to Leo, the sign of its domicile, by a trine. Jupiter, was exalt, which is exalted in Cancer, is configured to Pisces by Trine, which is one of its, its second domicile. And finally, Saturn, when it is exalted in Libra, is configured to Aquarius by a Trine. So in all three instances, there is actually a pretty clear um, 
sort of arrangement there that is partially predicated on the concept of sect through the diurnal planets. Additionally, Porphyry goes on to say, if you look at the nocturnal planets, which are the Moon, Venus, and Mars, they are all configured to one of their domiciles by sextile when they're in their signs of exaltation. So the Moon, which, which is exalted in Taurus, uh, is configured by can- uh, to Cancer, its domicile, its only domicile by a sextile. Venus, which is exalted in Pisces, is configured to Taurus by sextile. And Mars, which is exalted in Capricorn, is configured to Scorpio by sextile. So not only does this create a distinction between the diurnal and nocturnal planets that's built into the very concept of the exaltations, but it also does this weird thing where it connects the diurnal planets with the trine aspect and nocturnal planets with the sextile aspect, which is kind of important and we'll come back to that later. Another area where the concept of sect shows up is in an ancient concept known as the planetary joys scheme, which is a scheme where um, each of the seven traditional planets was associated with one specific house. And these are the houses that the planets were originally associated with. So Mercury is said to have its joy or to be associated with the first house. The moon is said to have its joy in the third house. Venus is associated with the fifth house, Mars with the sixth house, then the sun with the ninth house, Jupiter with the eleventh house, and Saturn with the twelfth house. So right away you can see what this does then is it divides the planets again in half into two sections or two teams, where all of the diurnal planets are assigned to one of the houses in the top half of the chart. So that's the sun, Jupiter, and Saturn, which are the three daytime planets. And then all of the nocturnal planets are assigned to one of the houses in the bottom half of the chart, which is the Moon, Venus, and Mars. Uh, Mercury, interestingly, which remember was neutral, is assigned to the first house. And part of the reason for that is because Mercury, um, any planets in the first house, when you're using whole sign houses, they can actually be um, either above or below the horizon and still in the first house because the degree of the ascendant can be anywhere in the rising sign in whole sign houses, um, but unlike quadrant houses, the degree of the ascendant does not mark the very beginning of the first house necessarily. It just marks where the horizon is or is sort of like a sensitive point. So Mercury, which is neutral, basically is in one of the most neutral possible houses, which in this case is the first house, which unites the upper hemisphere with the lower hemisphere of the chart. or the place that is above the Earth versus the place that is below the Earth. So that's another core area then, and this is where many of the core significations of the houses originally come from, is from this planetary joys scheme. And then many of the ancient astrologers actually started deriving significations of the houses from this scheme. So if you look at the joys scheme, all of the planets interestingly the luminaries are um, aspecting their sect benefic by a sextile. So for example, the sun is configured to Jupiter by sextile, and the moon, when it's in the third house, is configured to Venus in the fifth by sextile, whereas they're configured to the malefics by a hard aspect. So the sun is configured to Saturn by a square from the ninth house to the twelfth house, 
and the moon is configured to Mars by a square from the third house to the sixth house. So interestingly, um, something happens though when you draw aspect lines from the luminaries to the one remaining planet that does not have an aspect line so far, and that is Mercury. And what's interesting that I found and discovered a few years ago and got really excited about during the course of a process uh, during the, the process of a series of discoveries about the planetary joys scheme is that when you draw an aspect line from the sun to Mercury, it's configured to Mercury by a trine. Whereas when you draw an aspect line from the moon in its joy in the third house, um, it ends up being a sextile. So what's interesting about that is that that means you get this association of the sun, which is the daytime sect leader with the trine, and you get the moon, which is the nighttime sect leader being associated with the sextile. So that should sound familiar to you because we've actually seen that before already. And where have we seen it? We saw it in the exaltation scheme for some weird, mysterious reason that looked like it could be maybe like a fluke or an accident at first. But upon closer examination, when you realize the same exact thing is happening in both diagrams, you realize that something else is probably going on. So remember, in the exaltation scheme, all of the diurnal planets were, when they were in their signs of exaltation, configured to one of their domiciles by trine, whereas the nocturnal planets were all configured to one of their domiciles by sextile. And here we see, again, in the planetary joys scheme, the trine being associated with the diurnal planets, in this case the sun, and the uh, nocturnal planets being associated with the sextile, in this case the moon in her joy, being to, configured to Mercury by sextile. So there's some sort of like overarching idea or system here, and this is part of what leads to speculations that large portions of ancient astrology may be the result of some sort of deliberate invention by somebody, by a person or a group of, group of people sometime around the first century BCE in Egypt. But that's kind of like a separate topic that I've gone into before, I think, in different parts of the podcast. So I'll sort of skip around. I'll skip that now and just say, obviously, looking at this, if you're watching the video version, that looks pretty suggestive, and it looks like there's something going on. There's some sort of overarching or underlying symmetry and deliberateness about some of these schemes. There's like some schematization here that's not probably occurring naturally, but might be a result of some sort of deliberate system that somebody created or set up at some point in time. But one of the things that I'm sort of emphasizing here, the reason I'm pointing this out, is that at the very core of it is the concept of sect and the distinction between day and night charts. All right, so there's another whole area, which is the triplicity rulers, which is a, uh, an additional rulership scheme, sort of like the domicile rulership scheme that was used in traditional astrology. And those rulers of the triplicities actually change. The order of the rulers changes depending on if you have a day or night chart. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into that here because I have a chapter on this in my book. But needless to say that um, because the rulership system changes depending on if it's a day or night chart, sect is obviously a very core concept there in that system. And what's interesting is that even though triplicity rulers didn't really survive into modern astrology and aren't used that much, uh, the concept of triplicities, of grouping the signs into four sets of three, 
and associating them with the elements, the four classical elements of Greek philosophy, which are earth, air, fire, and water, that did survive. And those assignments of earth, air, fire, and water actually directly come from their triplicity rulership scheme. So again, that's another way in which the concept of sect is sort of like secretly still in modern astrology, even if we've lost some concepts such as the triplicity ruler's scheme. Finally, there's a number of other like little minor areas where sect becomes important. One of them is in the Arabic parts, which are these geometrical or mathematical calculations. Um, the lot of fortune is the more pro most prominent one, or the part of fortune is one of the ones that kind of survives into modern astrology. And in most ancient astrologers, though, they would reverse the calculation for the lot of fortune depending on if the person was born during the day or if they were born at night. And I actually wrote a paper about this years ago that's up on the Hellenistic Astrology website about the rationale for the calculation for the lot of fortune and some of the other early um, Arabic parts. And what's interesting that I discovered at one point about, I don't know, 12 years ago in 2008 or so, is that there was a rationale underlying the calculation for the lot of fortune that had to do with um, this analogy of going from light to darkness, and that they were associating the concept of darkness with a lot of fortune and with the idea of like the body and physical incarnation versus this other uh, lot that was used called the lot of spirit, which they associated with um, light and the concept of the mind or the intellect or the soul or spirit. And they used a reverse analogy of going from darkness to light for the lot of spirit and its calculation. But underlying the lot of fortune and this reversal is this actual logic, and it's very much tied into uh, the distinction between day and night charts and that having a real practical uh, value in ancient astrology. Uh, to get more complicated, I did do an episode at one point on the master of the nativity, which is the, the concept or the original concept of the overall ruler of the chart. And uh, I did a whole like two or three hour episode with that on, on that last year. You can see episode 205 of the astrology podcast for more. But one of the things that was interesting about those calculations is that in order to find the, the master or the overall ruler of the nativity, you first have to find the predominator. And the predominator, there's three candidates for it. It's either going to be the sun, the moon, or the ascendant. But in all cases, the strongest luminary is preferred as long as you do have one strong luminary in your chart. And then whatever the domicile lord is of the predominator, becomes the master of the nativity or the overall ruler of the chart. So one of the interesting implications for this is that basically the short version of it is that many people who are born during the day are characterized by their sun sign, whereas many people who are born at night are actually more characterized by their moon sign was the, the basic sort of most important implication of that doctrine of the master of the nativity. So that means in modern astrology, we've kind of gotten away from that because modern astrology from the 1930s onwards gravitated towards sun sign astrology because it's easier to calculate uh, a person's sun signs. You can write that up in like a newspaper column for a horoscope or, or something like that. But this would have looked weird to an ancient astrologer because of their fundamental distinction between day charts and night charts. And therefore, from that, their emphasis on the sun sign for a person who was born during the day 
but the moon sign for a person who is born at night. So that, that becomes really fundamental even to character analysis in ancient astrology, because even though most ancient astrology was not focused on character analysis or psychology in the same way that modern astrology is, um, the one area or one of the areas where character analysis and some level of or some form of psychology was used was once you identify the master of the nativity, that was supposed to be able to tell you something about a person's character and their soul or their psyche or, or what, whatever you want to call it. So this is an area where that would come up. All right, and finally, one last area <clears throat> was in timing. In the annual perfections timing technique, um, there was a basic version of the technique where you basically just calculate the rising sign, and then whatever sign is rising at the moment of a person's birth, that becomes the ruler of the first year of their life. And then the sign after that becomes the ruler of the second year of their life, and so on and so forth. Um, that's the basic method of annual perfections, and that's the one that everybody knows. I did a whole episode on that in episode 153 of the Astrology Podcast. However, in some ancient astrologers, there was a more advanced method of annual perfections, and in that method, they tell you to also emphasize perfections from the sect light. So, for example, Vadius Valens in the second century says, if you're born during the day, you should do the perfections from your sun sign and count one sign per year from the sun sign, versus if you're born at night, you should do the perfections from the moon and count one sign per year from the lunar sign or from your moon sign, basically. And I've actually found this really effective over the years. I still primarily focus on the perfections from the ascendant or the rising sign. However, I find that um, anytime something happens basically over the past decade, and I go back and check and I don't see it in the perfections from the ascendant, when I perfect from the second from the sect light, it's always right there. And this has been a constant reminder for me over the past 12 or 15 years that I need to perfect from the sect light in addition to the ascendant every time. And I'm often like not doing that out of laziness or something, I'm not really sure. But every time there's something that I miss, it's always constantly there in the perfections of the sect light. So it's something that I've tried to remind myself of over and over again over the years. All right, so that's the basic overview of why this is an important and pervasive concept in ancient astrology. Clearly, it's an important concept. There's no way to argue that. Um, unfortunately, it did fall out of the later tradition, and I suspect that this was partially due to a misunderstanding that had to do with the planetary joys scheme, um, not the planetary joys, but the rejoicing conditions, and uh, a sort of overuse of the rejoicing conditions and misapplication of them that happened in the medieval and the later Renaissance traditions. And I'll circle around and come back to that later and talk about why that's important and how we can possibly avoid making the same mistake. But the main thing I wanted to focus on here is just showing you how this is a core foundational concept, and so it can't really be rejected. Instead, we've got to revive, revive this concept and figure out how to use it again. And um, part of the reason is because it's a core foundational concept that's interwoven in almost every technique in ancient astrology. But the other reason that I'm about to demonstrate and show you now is because it's also a super useful and helpful technique that can enhance your astrology. So let's get into that part of this by getting into the more sort of practical 
chart example-oriented part of this lecture. Uh, before I go there, though, are there any questions from the audience at this point in the lecture? Does anyone have any points they want to make? Let me let me know in the chat box uh, here if you get a chance. How many people joined us today? It looks like we've got about 50 participants. Thanks, everybody, for showing up tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, this is kind of short notice, but I thought it would be good to have some audience. Yeah, thanks for joining me, Shakira. I'm interested to, I'm excited to join you on your podcast soon where we're going to be talking about stuff. So shout out to Shakira for that next month in November. Um, and also, we'll be talking about Saturn and Saturn returns, which is an important application of sect um, in an episode of the Astrology Podcast we're going to record on Wednesday. So that should be good. Um, other questions. How about condition of the planets? Warm, hot, dry, moist. And relevance to sect, there is some way in which the temperament doctrine is integrated into sect in some ways. I don't think it's that important, or at least it's not something I place a lot of emphasis on. So I'm not going to go into it too much here because sect is kind of its own thing, which is sort of suffices on its own and stands apart from other things. Um, some people, Ray says that sect like perfections are super interesting, it makes sense. Um. Yeah, yeah. Sectlight. I think I might have some examples. I'm not sure if I have an example of that later in this talk, but we'll see. All right. Um. We'll get to the the difference or the cutoff for day and night in just a minute. All right. Let's get into the practical stuff. So, um, switching back to my slides. Here it is. How do you tell if it's a day or night chart? So first, first things first. This is the most fundamental thing is you have to figure out how to tell once you're glancing at a chart if it's a day or night chart. So the quick way to do this, it's actually very easy when you look at just about any chart. If the sun is anywhere above the exact degrees of the ascendant descendant axis, then it is a day chart. Whereas if the sun is anywhere below the exact degrees of the ascendant descendant axis, then it's a night chart. So let me show you a diagram to show you what I mean by that. So here's a chart on the left where let's say the ascendant is somewhere, you just identify the exact degrees of the ascendant-descendant axis. If the sun is anywhere in the top half of the chart, then it's automatically a day chart. If it's anywhere below the ascendant-descendant axis in basically the bottom half of the chart, then it's going to be a night chart. So that's the quick and easy way to do it. And it's actually pretty simple in most cases to just glance at a chart. And if you see, for example, the sun in the 10th house, then you know it's going to be a day chart pretty much automatically, versus if you see the sun, let's say in the 4th house, then it's going to be a night chart pretty much automatically. So even if you're if you're using um, Placidus, that makes it really easy to determine if it's a day chart or night chart because the ascendant-descendant axis in Placidus represents the horizon. Um, if you're using whole sign houses, you need to actually pay attention to the exact degrees of the ascendant-descendant axis because the exact degree of the ascendant-descendant axis marks where the horizon is. And since in whole sign houses, the ascendant does not mark the beginning of the first house, it just marks a sensitive point within the first house, um, when you're using whole sign houses, you need to pay close attention to where the sun is relative to that ascendant-descendant axis just to be sure. 
and I'll show you some example charts in a little bit to clarify what I mean by this. So one thing that you can do that I would recommend everybody does, especially if you're first learning sect, but even if you're you've already been familiar with it for a while, um, is go outside some day around sunrise. Like let's say 30 minutes or maybe an hour before sunrise, wake up super early, go outside and like take either a laptop or your phone or something with you that you can calculate charts with and just cast a chart for that exact time it is that you're going outside and then sit there and watch um, sunrise take place. Watch the sun come up over the horizon just visually and keep refreshing or um, recalculating the chart every few minutes so that you can see what it looks like outside visually as the sun is rising over the horizon and what that looks like in the actual chart when you're just like looking at um, whatever chart you're looking at. So here's a chart right now uh, cast for this exact moment in Denver, and it's actually really close to sunset because the sun is about to set there. We can see it at 19 degrees of Libra here in Denver on October 11th, 2020. And we see the degree of the descendant, which represents the western horizon, about to set. So, so do this exercise where you go outside, do it at sunrise first, but then also do it um, some other time at sunset. And just repeat the same process and see what it looks like in the chart when the sun is actually setting and what it looks like outside. And you'll get a really good sense for not just how sect works and what it looks like visually and astronomically, but also what the chart itself is representing depending on what um, house system you're using and different things like that. So right now in this chart, we can see that the sun is still above the horizon because it's above the degree of the descendant. But as soon as I'm going to advance the chart here just a few minutes, as soon as I advance the chart and we move a few minutes forward, we'll see the sun eventually move under the degree of the descendant. And at that point, the sun sets and it becomes dark out because the sun moves underneath the horizon and then it becomes a night chart. So pretty rapidly. So that's what sunset looks like in whole sign houses. <clears throat> I'm going to advance the chart several hours to sunrise tomorrow morning. Okay, so here's a chart set for like October 12th at 5:42 a.m. in Denver, Colorado. The ascendant is at 1 degree of Libra and the sun is at 19 degrees of Libra. So the sun is below the degree of the ascendant descendant axis right now. So that means that this is just before sunrise. So it's still dark out, it's still nighttime, but then pretty quickly if you keep advancing the chart and move it forward like half an hour or an hour, the sun is going to inch towards the ascendant. And then eventually, once the sun hits the degree of the ascendant, it rises over the eastern horizon, and that is the moment of sunrise. And visually, if you're if you were standing outside tomorrow morning at this time, you would see the sun literally rise over the horizon at that moment. And it would suddenly become daytime out, and it would become very bright, and it suddenly becomes a, a diurnal chart at that moment. So that's the basic distinction between how to determine if it's a day chart or a night chart is just see if the sun is above the exact degrees of the ascendant-descendant axis or 
below the exact degrees of the ascendant descendant axis. Does that make sense to everybody, or does anybody have any questions with that? I'm trying to scan the chat a little bit, but it's a little tricky. Everybody's talking about perfection years, I think. Yeah, everyone's good. Good. Okay, so there is a little bit of ambiguity about the concept of twilight and what happens there with sect, and there is one like proviso I have to introduce which Lisa and I talked about in the Q&A episode on sect last month in the Astrology Podcast. I think it was episode 273, so it was the one right before this one. And that's where we talked about how there is a little bit of wiggle room when the sun is really close to the degree of the ascendant or close to the degree of the descendant, where there's some ambiguity about whether it's a day or night chart, because you're kind of in between, and that's what the concept of twilight means. It's not just a teen like rom-com movie series, but in fact it's an important astronomical distinction which becomes really crucial here when you're trying to determine if you have a day chart or a night chart, but there's this period of ambiguity when the sun gets close to the ascendant. Okay, so this is a tricky topic because most I think most astrologers say that it's basically a night chart until the sun hits the exact degree of the ascendant and moves above it, and that it's a day chart until the sun hits the exact degree of the descendant and moves below it. However, I started running into an issue over the course of the past decade where I noticed that there were some charts. Shakira says that that's what Demetra says. Yeah, I'm sure that's what most traditional astrologers say, honestly. There's I haven't been able to find a lot of like Hellenistic authors that are super clear about this, so I'm not actually fully clear what the ancient astrologers themselves thought. But I think a lot of traditional astrologers at this point have taken it as a really strict distinction that if the sun is only like even a few minutes below the degree of the ascendant, that it's still a night chart. So I started running into an issue though, where I started running into and finding charts where um, somebody was born with the sun close to the ascendant, but it was still a few degrees below the degree of the ascendant, but for some reason, which should be a night chart because it's just before sunrise, but it was for some reason already acting as if it was a day chart. And when I would do things like zodiac releasing, or I'd apply sect to the chart, and I would do things, use techniques that were based on sect that were very sensitive to whether it was a day or night chart. For some reason, the chart would behave better and would work out better as a day chart than a night chart. So let me see if I can pull up the chart. But one of the first ones that I really started grappling um, with with this issue was the birth chart of George Lucas. So let me see if I have this calculated correctly. But here is the birth chart of George Lucas, who was famous as the guy that um, the Hollywood director that came up with Star Wars and the Indiana Jones series. So here's his chart for people watching the video version of this, where George Lucas has, according to um, his birth time, which is about 5.40 a.m., it may be a little bit off, I think it's actually a minute or two later, but he has 17 degrees of Taurus rising. And his sun is at 23 degrees of Taurus. 
So that means his sun is a full like five or six degrees below the degree of the ascendant. And most astrologers would treat that then as a night chart because the sun is below the ascendant descendant axis and the sun hasn't hit the horizon yet. Um, so it hasn't fully hit sunrise. The problem though is that if you go outside um, during one of those times, if you go outside when the sun is about within five to six degrees of the ascendant and you look at the sky, it's actually already quite bright out because the sun is so close to rising and it's already pretty much daylight out by that point, by the, sun, by the time the sun gets within a few degrees of the ascendant. And as I wrestled with this and started to pay attention to it more and more in other charts, I started to realize that there may be some charts that were acting like day charts when the sun was that close to the ascendant because it was basically already bright out and functionally the day had already essentially started once it got within a certain range of twilight. So my working rule at this point is that charts Sometimes when the sun is within just a few degrees of the ascendant um, but hasn't ri risen over the horizon yet, that some of those charts will already act as day charts, and I typically will default to treating them like that if they're within, let's say, one to three degrees of the ascendant. I will treat them as a day chart already. Um, and in reality, the range may extend even further up to six degrees. So George Lucas, for example, is somebody where the birth time might be off, so it's possible that it's only like five degrees for him. But up to five to six degrees, I'm comfortable saying that some of those charts will behave more like a day chart than a night chart. And that's sort of the working rule that I have at this point in time. Uh, when it comes to the descendant, though, I think the range is a little bit more narrow. It seems to shut off much sooner. And I have seen charts where if the sun is, um, just one degree or up to maybe two or three degrees below the degree of the descendant, where it will still sometimes behave as more of a day chart than a night chart, even though the sun recently set and it's still going to be quite bright out at that point in time. So um, I don't think it goes as far though, and for some reason the range seems to cut off much sooner so that the orb is much tighter for uh, sunset than it is at sunrise. Yeah, one person is mentioning Obama's chart, and that's one that I've really wondered about as well, because he was born very close to sunset, although I think he is further than that. I think it's like more than three degrees, if I remember correctly. Let me pull up his chart really quick just to glance at it and be reminded. Yeah, his is like four degrees. So it's like we start getting in in a range there where um, I'm not really sure, and you start getting into a more more controversial range in terms of whether that's correct. But his is an example of somebody where he was born, his son is at 12 degrees of Leo, and his descendant is born at 18 degrees of Leo. So the son is only like three to four three to four degrees below the descendant. And while most traditional astrologers would automatically treat that as a night chart because the sun has moved below the ascendant descendant axis. It's possible that it's actually behaving more like a day chart rather than a night chart because it would still be somewhat bright out at that point in time. So I don't want to I don't want to dwell on this too much because this has been part of my own provisional sort of research over the course of the past decade and it's still ongoing and evolving and everything else. 
but um, that's kind of my working. Um, that's where I'm at personally at this point. That it's about six degrees uh, on the ascendant side, and about maybe three degrees or so on the descendant side. Although I'm still open to adjusting those uh, at different different times. All right, so let's move on past that point since we're still just basically defining some of the basic stuff. Um, it looks like I might have some questions I didn't see in the Q&A. I'm mainly paying attention to questions in the chat box, so you guys might want to put your questions there instead of the Q&A. Um, that's a little bit too complicated of a question. I'm going to skip that one. Okay, some of these are good questions, but I'll have to save them till later and I'll circle back around and come back to them later on. All right, let's move on to the next section, which is using sect in practice. Okay, so how is this technique actually used in interpreting charts? You may be wondering at this point in this talk, now that we're like 40, 45 minutes into it, and the answer to that is that sect is a qualitative distinction. And this is really important, and I always try to emphasize this a lot right from the start, when we, once we actually start talking about interpretation, that this isn't about strength. This isn't about how strong or weak the planets are, which would be like a quantitative distinction, but instead it's a qualitative distinction, and it primarily alters how the benefics and malefics function in a chart, which is to say, the way that it works is that the benefics are not always fully benefic, and the malefics are not always fully malefic. So sect works, you can kind of think about it as a mitigating factor where sect alters the, um, the way that the benefics and malefics manifest their significations. And there's sometimes going to be more constructive manifestations of the significations of that planet, and there's sometimes going to be, let's say, less constructive manifestations of the significations of that planet. And sect is how you determine where on the spectrum the planet is going to land when manifesting those significations. So, um, since I've mentioned the concept of benefics and malefics, I'm sort of taking that for granted at this point. Even though I haven't defined it, I should probably go ahead and define it. So, benefics and malefics, that's the other sort of binary concept or very basic binary concept that's built into the, the basic foundations of Western astrology, where you have two sets of planets. You have Venus and Jupiter, which are the two benefics, uh, which comes from the Greek word agathopoios, which means good doer. And then you have Mars and Saturn, which are the two malefic planets, which comes from the Greek term kakopoios, which means like bad doers or evil doers. So the benefics and malefics have very special roles or special powers that they play in a chart. The benefics have the special role to affirm, to stabilize, or to improve the significations of different parts of the chart or other planets in the chart, whereas the malefics have the special role or the special power to negate, to destabilize, or sometimes even to corrupt the significations of other planets in the chart. Or, or different parts of the chart, for better or worse. Generally speaking, one of the ways that you can frame this is that the benefic planets affirm or say, say yes to the significations that other planets want to signify or what parts of the chart want to signify, whereas the malefics can negate or they can say no to different parts of the chart 
or what different planets in the chart want to signify. So the concept of benefic and malefic is very closely linked to the concept of sect. And one of the problems, one of the things that happened in modern astrology is that modern astrologers would look at a planet like Saturn and they would look at like a person a person's Saturn placement or a person experiencing a Saturn return and they would say it's really obvious that this person while it's true from a traditional standpoint that this person's Saturn placement is really difficult for them and has been experienced as extreme instances of hardship or negative things they would look at another person's Saturn in their chart and see that this person seemed to do perfectly well with their Saturn and they had more constructive manifestations of it and eventually, after much effort, ended up doing just fine. So that was used as the basis to, in the psychological traditions in like the 70s and 80s, to reject the concept of, of benefic and malefic altogether as not being useful because they said that there could be constructive or destructive manifestations of planets like Saturn in any chart, and therefore the distinction was not true. So part of the problem with the rejection of that concept, though, is that they were missing this very related sister concept, which is the concept of sect, where in order to determine how a planet is functioning in a chart, especially a benefic or a malefic, you also had to take into account the concept of sect. Otherwise, you couldn't actually fully determine if the planet would manifest its more constructive significations or its more destructive significations. So the concept of benefic and malefic was never meant to be used um, in isolation from the concept of sect. And the loss of the concept of sect is part of what made the distinction between benefic and malefic planets untenable to begin with. So very important reason why we're recovering this today. So when you're trying to interpret sect, one of the things that it does, one of the ways to conceptualize how sect works, and one of the things that's interesting if you look at the Greek texts, is that they often talk about sect as if it's affecting the mood of the planets, as if the planets are almost like sentient beings that are have different um, mental or emotional states, and sometimes they're feeling happy and other times they're feeling depressed or sort of like angry, and that this is a way that they qualified how a planet would be functioning in a chart and what kind of significations it would be providing and sort of saying about a person's life in general. So when you're looking at sect in a chart, when you're looking at the planets within the context of sect, each planet prefers to be in a chart that matches its own sect or matches the team that it's on. And each planet, generally speaking, could be conceptualized as being happier when it's in its preferred chart. Um, so they're said to be of the sect in favor when a planet is in a chart that matches its preferred sect or its preferred team. So this would be, for example, Jupiter, which is a daytime planet. If it was in a daytime chart, would be considered to be happy based on its sect status. Or conversely, like Venus, which is a nighttime planet, prefers to be in a nighttime chart and would be happier based on its sect status if it was so. When a planet is in a chart that matches its preferred sect, it's said to be of the sect in favor, and what happens generally in interpretation is that the benefic planets are more benefic, 
whereas the malefic planets are less malefic and tend to be more constructive. So you get the more constructive side of the planet if they're in a chart that matches their preferred sect. So the daytime planets prefer to be in a day chart, and the nighttime planets prefer to be in a night chart. Conversely, um, planets can be conceptualized as being unhappy or in some instances even angry and sort of like lashing out when they are in a chart that does not match their preferred sect. So this would be if the daytime planets were in a night chart or if the nighttime planets were in a day chart. The benefic planets were, are often less benefic and their less constructive significations come to the forefront when they're in a chart that does not match their preferred sect, whereas the malefic planets tend to be more malefic and tend to have their negative significations exacerbated when they're in a chart that contrasts with their preferred sect. So the, the main summary of this rule is basically that planets on your team tend to be more helpful. So if you're born during the day, then the daytime planets are on your team and will tend to be more constructive and more helpful towards you and your agenda in life and what you're sort of set out to accomplish. Whereas planets that are not on your team um, tend to be less help helpful and tend to be more obstructive or more um, problematic in helping you to accomplish your goals in life and accomplish whatever it is that you've set out to do. So that would be like if you're born during the day, that would be the nighttime planets, or if you're born at night, that would be the daytime planets. One of the most useful interpretive principles, though, for this entire technique is just using it to identify the most positive and most negative planet in the chart purely based on sect alone. And this is something that was done very commonly in ancient astrology, and it's probably the most important and most useful interpretive principle that I've taken from the concept of sect and that I've tried to pass on to like subsequent generations of astrologers because it's the one that I found to be the most useful. And the gist of this rule is really simple. It's basically just this, that um, the most positive planet in your chart, if you were born by day, if you were, you were born with a day chart, is Jupiter, whereas the most positive planet in your chart, if you're born at night, will be Venus. Conversely, the most negative planet in your chart, if you're born during the day, is the planet Mars, whereas if you're born at night, the most negative planet is the planet Saturn. And it just becomes a very simple, very easy breakdown in terms of identifying the most positive and negative planet in your chart, um, but also in terms of identifying the most positive and negative planet in other people's charts as well. It's one of the first um, things that I will always look at anytime I look at a new chart is identifying the sect of the chart and identifying the most positive planet and the most negative planet. And I think this is also one of the first interpretive principles that any Ancient astrologer would apply to chart delineations as well, because it's one of those one of the most fundamental distinctions. Just is it a day chart or a night chart, and which planets are going to be functioning in a more constructive way versus a more destructive way, just based on that distinction. All right, so 
everybody at this point should probably like pause and think about if you have a day chart or a night chart and what the most positive planet is in your chart and what the most negative planet is in your chart because that will help you to establish the extremes basically in terms of the benefics and malefics in your life. So that's not the start that's not the stopping point though that just helps you to identify or to establish the extremes of positive and negative. What ends up happening is it creates kind of like a spectrum between the benefics and malefics where if you have a day chart you know that Jupiter is your most positive planet so that's at one extreme the positive extreme and Mars is your most negative planet so that's at the other most negative extreme. What happens is the other two planets that are left over the other benefic and the other malefic end up somewhere more towards the middle where they become more moderate and they become less extreme in the manifestation of their significations. So Venus in a day chart is still a benefic, but it's not quite as positive or as benefic as it could be, but instead it's somewhere more towards the middle or more towards neutral. Saturn similarly is still a malefic and will still tend to be somewhat more challenging in a person's chart or in a person's life. However, it's moved in a day chart towards being more neutral and not as difficult or negative as it could be um, in general or otherwise. So Saturn tends to be more like surmountable difficulties in day charts rather than the worst case scenario that it could be, which is typically more what Mars does in day charts. Conversely, in a night chart, the most positive planet is Venus, the most negative planet is Saturn. Jupiter um, ends up being more moderate, and while it's still somewhat positive, it's not usually anything to write home about, and instead tends to be more moderate in its positive significations. And similarly, Mars, while it's still malefic and can indicate some challenges, they tend to be more like surmountable difficulties rather than the worst case scenario. So Mars tends to be much more constructive in night charts um, than it is in day charts. So looking at the questions, some people are asking about um, dignity and if a planet's sign condition can mitigate things. That can mitigate things to some extent. There's different mitigating factors that you have to take into account, and I'll have a whole section on that at the end of this once we get there to talk about some of the different mitigations. But yeah, things like a planet being in its exaltation is a positive mitigating factor. A planet being in its domicile is a positive mitigating factor. There's a few different positive mitigating factors like that that can help to balance things out so that it's not either the worst case scenario or it can take a planet that's very positively placed and make it not as well placed depending on what the mitigation is because mitigations can go either way. They can be either be good mitigations or they can be negative mitigations. All right. So one of the, the easiest techniques to do is to look at the house placement of the most positive and negative planets in your chart. And the rule is basically this. Generally speaking, the house of the most positive planet will tend to be an area of good fortune and ease in the life of the native. So look at think about your own chart and think about what house if you have a day chart, this would be the, the house that Jupiter is placed in, the most positive planet, versus if you have a night chart, this would be the house placement of Venus. And generally speaking, all other factors, especially all other mitigating factors aside, 
that should tend to be one of the most positive houses for you is the house that contains the most positive planet in your chart based on sect, so Jupiter in a day chart or Venus in a night chart. Conversely, the house of the most negative planet will tend to be an area of difficulty, hardship, and sometimes even misfortune. So this would be the house placement of Saturn for those that were born with night charts, or the placement of Mars for those who are born with day charts. So this can be mitigated for better or worse based on other conditions like um, there's a bunch of different conditions actually that we'll get into, but for the most part, the rule generally speaking holds true, and it's something that you can apply to charts relatively consistently as one of your first um, interpretive principles to get an overall sense of the different parts of the life that'll tend to be a little bit easier versus the parts of the life that will tend to be the most challenging for the person um, at different points in their life. So it's a pretty good interpretive rule to, to get into. All right, so um, for the purpose of this technique, of course, as always, it's like we're 270-something episodes into the astrology podcast, so by now presumably you know that I use whole sign houses, but if you don't, for the purpose of this, I'd recommend using the whole sign house system where you just determine what sign the ascendant is located in, and whatever sign that is becomes the first house from 0 to 30 degrees of that sign. Then the sign after that becomes the second house, and the sign after that becomes the third house, and so on and so forth. There ends up being 12 signs and 12 houses, and uh, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Here's some basic significations of the houses for those that are watching the video version of this. Um, I'm not going to read all of these out, but these are pretty standard, pretty straightforward significations for the 12 houses. Um, I don't think these are controversial. Like the fourth house, for example, is like parents, home, family. Third house is siblings, learning, travel. Tenth house is career. Seventh house is relationships, and so on and so forth. Pretty standard stuff. Basically, just take these concepts, these basic, basic concepts like sect, benefic, and malefic, and now the significations of the houses, combine them, and already you start getting some really powerful interpretive principles that you can apply to charts. So let's apply the concept of sect and the idea of the most positive and negative planets to a set of hypothetical charts just to start to get a sense for how we would interpret these placements if we were looking at a chart and what sort of statements we could start making just based on identifying the most positive and negative planets in the chart right from the beginning. Do people have any questions at this point? I guess there's some discussion about what happens when the same, the most positive and negative planet are in the same sign or the same house. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, I think I have some slides on that here in, in just a little bit. Okay. So here's a chart that has Leo rising, and the sun is in Taurus in the tenth whole sign house. So right away we know that this is a day chart because the sun is in the top half of the chart above the ascendant descendant axis. So right away, we know it's a day chart. That's the first thing that we've identified and figured out. The next thing we want to figure out is what the most positive planet is and what the most negative planet is. Since it's a day chart, we know that the most positive planet is going to be Jupiter, and we see that Jupiter here is in Aquarius, which is the seventh sign from the rising sign from Leo, the sign that contains the ascendant. So we know that therefore Jupiter is in the seventh house. 
Seventh house has to do with relationships. So we would assume then one of the most basic interpretations that we could say is that since the most this is a day chart and the most positive planet in the chart is Jupiter, the fact that it's in the seventh house means that some of the most positive things that will probably happen in this person's life will happen in the sphere of relationships and partnership and marriage. That this will either tend to be an area of ease, of greater ease in the person's life, of success, or of generally luck and good fortune will come to the native through the sphere of relationships. Conversely, since this is a day chart, we would then look to identifying the most negative planet in the chart or the most difficult planet in the chart, which based on sect would be Mars. In this chart, we find Mars in Virgo, which is the second sign from the rising sign, so that means it's in the second whole sign house. The second house has to do with finances, livelihood, and possessions. So right away, one of the most basic and fundamental interpretive statements we could make is that some of the greatest challenges and difficulties and potentially hardships or setbacks in the person's life will come through the area of uh, financial matters and possessions and other second house topics like livelihood or finances. So right away, we've identified one of the areas then that will tend to be more fortunate, which is the area of relationships. And we've identified one of the areas that will tend to be more problematic or more difficult, which is the area of finances in the second house. So we've kind of ignored the other two planets, which is Venus, the other benefic, and Saturn. And that's because we focused instead on the two extremes of the most positive area and the most negative area, because those are going to tend to stand out more and those are going to tend to be more prominent in the person's life and more obvious. What happens with the other planets is that Venus, for example, <clears throat> here is in the ninth house, which is the place of religion, education, foreign travel, and foreign places. Um, and it's a benefic, so it indicates positive things. But because it's a day chart, Venus is not as positive as it would normally be. So what this will indicate is like some positive things, some moderately positive things in the area of education or travel or interaction with foreign people or foreign places. But it's not really all that positive, and it's not necessarily something to write home about. It's just moderately good at different points in the person's life. Similarly, Saturn, since this is a day chart, tends to be a bit more constructive. So Saturn here is in the 11th house, which is the place of friends and groups and alliances. And Saturn in the 11th house in a day chart would mean that the person would run into some surmountable difficulties and some obstacles, especially early in life, that have to do with friends and groups and alliances. But eventually, um, it would not be a huge issue, and it would be something that the person, after, after struggling with initially in life, would eventually overcome or potentially become a strength in this person's life. So uh, that's because it's a day chart, so therefore Saturn is still a malefic and still indicates some challenges, but they tend to be much more moderate than the extreme, than they could be otherwise. So you'll tend to get the more positive manifestations or constructive manifestations of Saturn than you otherwise might. All right, so that's our first example chart. <clears throat> let's switch it up though, and let's say we still have a chart with Leo rising, but now the sun is in Scorpio, so it's in the fourth whole sign house. So because the sun is in the bottom half of the chart, we know right away that it's a night chart, so the sect of the chart has suddenly changed. So 
in this chart, because it's a night chart, we would focus on Venus as the most positive planet, which here is in the third house of siblings, short distance travel, and um, like communication. And we would focus on Saturn now as being the most negative planet in the 11th house of friendships and alliances and groups. So the basic statement we would make here is that some of the most positive things in the person's life could come from the area of siblings, communication, or travel, and some of the greatest challenges would happen in the sphere of friendships and alliances and groups because Saturn is there in the 11th and a night chart. Jupiter is still in the 7th, but because it's a night chart, Jupiter would not be as positive as it would be otherwise, so it's not going to be it'll be like moderately positive indications for relationships, but it's not going to be the most positive or fortunate area of the person's life in all likelihood. And with Mars in the second house, it would still indicate some potential for challenges or obstacles in the area of finances, but it's not going to be huge insurmountable difficulties necessarily because it's a night chart and Mars tends to be much more moderate for people with night charts. And that's that's basically how sect works. That's the basic sort of distinction, just applying it to a hypothetical chart. Let's run through a few more examples though of hypothetical charts just to make sure you get the concept. So here's a chart with Leo rising again. The sun is in Sagittarius in the fifth house. So again, this is a night chart. So immediately it's a night chart, so we identify the placement of Venus. Venus is in Aquarius in the seventh house, so it's in the place of relationships, and it's the most positive planet because it's a night chart. So we would then expect relationships to be the most positive area of the person's life. And Saturn is still there in the 11th house, so we would expect the um, major area of struggle to be the area of friendships, alliances, and groups. Here's another chart. Let's say we've moved the sun to Aries in the ninth house with Leo rising, so it's a day chart. And Jupiter is now in the third house of siblings and communication and travel, so that's the most positive area of the life. And Mars is in the second house, uh, the area of finances, so that's going to be one of the most challenging areas of the life. Venus is over in the seventh house, but it's a day chart, so it's not super positive. And Saturn is up in the 11th house, so it's challenging, but it's not super negative. So again, it's just establishing, and I'm trying to drive home that whole spectrum that I was talking about earlier between establishing the extremes and figuring out what where the most positive planet is in the chart and where the most negative planet is in the chart, but then also understanding what that does to the two planets that it puts more towards the middle that makes much more moderate, and therefore much less um, both capable of harm, but also less capable of good. All right, so other examples. Let's say we have a chart with Leo rising and Sun in Scorpio. We then look to Venus, which here is in Sagittarius in the fifth house, which is the place of children. So it would indicate that some of the most positive parts of the life would come from the topic of children or creativity or other fifth house topics, whereas with Saturn in the seventh house, some of the greatest challenges would come in the area of partnership and relationships. Uh, Leo rising, Sun in Aries, Mars in the second, Jupiter in the third. I think I already kind of did that example, but basically difficulties in finances and positive things in siblings and communications. If the sun was in Taurus with Leo rising, we would look to 
Mars as the most negative planet, which is in the seventh house of relationships, and Jupiter in the third place of siblings, and so on and so forth. Basically, I keep going through through hypothetical examples here. Let's take a look at some real examples, though. Um, and let me glance. Does anybody have any questions at this point? Carolina Fernandez asks, does it matter somehow if the main benefic is ruled by a malefic? Yeah, that um, would come into the area of like mitigating factors because you do ultimately also have to pay attention to what the ruler of the house is doing, and that can sometimes counteract what the planet in the house is trying to indicate. But um, you know, then it also depends on what the sect is and how sect is affecting the ruler of that house as well. So, for example, is if the ruler of the house is a malefic, is it the most malefic planet in the chart based on sect, in which case that's going to be a more problematic outcome for the ruler of that house, or is the ruler of that house um, of the sect in favor? Is it like Saturn in a day chart, or is it Mars in a night chart, in which case you're going to get a more uh, constructive manifestation of the ruler of that house than you might otherwise? So you got to take those factors into account as well. Uh, Khalid asks, given that the luminaries are neither benefic or malefic, what, the, what is the quality of the influence of the sect light? For the most part, I just focus on uh, what the benefics and malefics are doing when it comes to this technique, and that's what really stands out the most to me about this. Um, I haven't seen any major thing qualitatively related to the luminaries that's really stood out, and I don't think that that doesn't necessarily mean that there's nothing there or there's not some sort of underlying interpretive principle. But for the most part, for me, what's really been useful with this technique is just using it to identify how the benefics and malefics are functioning, and I think that's the primary application. Uh, Karen says, if a malefic is exalted in its own house, does that make the effects manifest more positively? Um, yeah, that would be a mitigating factor. So if a malefic is contrary to the sect, like Saturn in a night chart, or Mars in a day chart, so that they're the most negative planet in the chart, that's going to indicate difficulties and it's going to be the most difficult planet. However, if the planet is in the sign of its exaltation or in the sign of its domicile, that will tend to act as a mitigating factor that often will make the planet not as bad as it could be. So it's still going to be the, your most difficult planet in all likelihood just based on sect, but it, you may not get the worst case scenario that you might see in some charts if they don't have that planet mitigated by some sort of zodiacal dignity. So that's something I'll, I'll come back to, I think, a little bit later once I um, start talking about the concept of, of mitigations. Let's take a look at some more like actual real example charts first, though. Or actually, it looks like there's some good questions. So keep your questions coming in. I appreciate it. Um, let me get rid of some of these. Okay. All right. So here's one example chart. So this was actually um, this is a client chart, and it's a, it's a chart it's from like a consultation I did like over I think almost ten years ago, and they had given me permission to use it, and it was this couple that came in for a consultation, 
they were primarily focused on on his chart, but I ended up looking at both of their charts. And so this is a chart of a person who has Capricorn rising, and he has the Sun in Gemini in the sixth whole sign house. So because the Sun is in the bottom half of the chart below the descendant ascendant axis, we know that this is a night chart. So it's a night chart, and Saturn is in Aquarius in the second whole sign house, and Venus, the most positive planet, is in Cancer in the seventh house. So basically, the most positive planet's in the seventh house, the most negative planet is in the second house. So what was really interesting about his life as he described it, and as his wife actually chimed in to describe, is I started making some basic statements about, well, you know, you have Saturn in the second house in the night chart. One of the areas of, of greatest difficulty and like problems or setbacks in your life was probably in the area of finances. And he ended up describing this situation where um, he said his family had a really hard time financially when he was growing up. And he grew up during the Great Depression and he was raised very frugally or like extremely fr frugally. And the family phrase that was often repeated was, quote unquote, that's all we have. So just make do with what, what little we have because we don't have any more of it, and you'll just have to adjust to that. So as a result of this, he was aware of every penny he had as he grew up into an adult, and then eventually be went on to have his own career and become successful. Um, but it gave him this recurring sort of lifelong focus and awareness of money and of sort of watching things and being extremely careful, almost to the point of being obsessive um, about his finances and, and being cautious about his spending due to this underlying fear that was there um, from his early experiences in childhood. So that was definitely the area of recurring sort of issues. The area of the most positive things, though, was Venus. So Venus is in the seventh house in a night chart. And what happened is that he met his wife. I think she was like 18 and she, or, or yeah, he was 19 and she was 18 because they were born about a year apart. And they met when they were that young, I think in high school or just out of high school. And they ended up being married for, they had a long and successful marriage and ended up being married for 64 years. So um, what was interesting is that she also had Venus in the seventh house in a night chart. So here's her chart. She was born about a year later. Um, she's a Cancer. He was a Gemini, and she was born about a year after him. But interestingly, they she was also born with Capricorn rising, with a night chart with Saturn in Aquarius in the second house. Um, but interestingly, Venus also ended up being in Cancer in the seventh house in a night chart. So the most positive planet in her chart was also in her seventh house of relationships. And they met when they were very young. They got married relatively early, and then they spent the next 64 years of their life together having a long and successful marriage, uh, with both of them having the most positive planet in their chart in their um, seventh houses. So I actually I've been using this chart. I asked them for permission to use this because I always thought it was such a good example, um, like ten years ago. And um, I just looked up today to see how they were doing, and and found out that he had actually passed away about five years ago. So they were married for exactly about sixty four years before he passed away, and then she passed away just a few years later, just last year in twenty nineteen. 
Um, so that was kind of sad and, and actually made me kind of depressed seeing that today, like finally following up to see how they were doing. But it was at least positive to have that realization that with the most positive planets in both of their charts in the seventh houses, that they both found each other that early in their life and then spent the rest of their lives together, basically, for all intents and purposes. And there was something that was really beautiful and really um, neat about that that I really appreciated. And, and of course, you know, when we did the consultation like 10 years ago, it was primarily about his chart, but then she got on the phone and knew everything about his life. So sometimes when he was being reticent about talking about certain things like his finances and things like that, she would be like, oh yeah, no, that was totally, that's totally what he does. And she would like fill me in on other stuff that he was a little bit more reticent about. So it was a really funny and cute couple. And I always remember that example and like using it for that reason, just because it was such a good example of the most positive planet in your chart and how that works out sometimes in very, very literal ways. All right. Um, so let me, I want to move on with other example charts. I'd like to get some questions. If anybody has any questions at this point, I want to pause for a moment. And um, I want to go grab some tea just because my throat's a little bit scratchy. So I'm going to take a very short, like two minute break to go grab that and come back. If anybody has any questions in the meantime, please let me know in the chat and I will try to answer them. Um, I'll just put the chart of the moment up in the meantime. But let me know if you have any questions in the chat and I'll be right back. All right, I am back. I have some tea. I'm getting refueled. I'm, I'm looking at some questions here. Thanks, everybody. I am appreciating the chat. Um, so, the people joining us today, for those listening to the recording whenever I release this in a few days, are people that are either patrons of the Astrology Podcast who are able to attend the live recordings each month. I'd like to start doing more live recordings besides just the forecasts. So this is kind of an experiment in doing that and recording more episodes live in front of an audience to get more audience interaction. And then there's also some people joining us from my course on Hellenistic Astrology, where I'll probably add this lecture to the course as like a bonus lecture as well. All right. So questions. Wendy says, as a visual learner, your real-life example was helpful to me. Good. Yeah, I'm going to go through the rest of this lecture is basically all example charts. I'm going to teach a bunch of different interpretive principles through sharing these different examples. Um, that one, though, is always important to me. It's one of the ones I think I used in my book. Um, it's also interesting because it's a good perfections example as well, because I think um, the the woman in the relationship who also had Saturn in the seventh, I think they met when they when she was 18 years old. So she was in a seventh house perfection year. So according to the perfections from the ascendant, it actually activated that Venus in the seventh house the year that she met what became the love of her life and started that relationship. So it all sort of like ties together in this very interesting way. Uh, once you get into the different layers of like sect, um, benefics and malefics, house placement, most positive benefic, and then activation of that according to annual perfections. And that really goes back to this entire idea that the birth chart itself, there's this concept, and I don't know where I got this from originally. I think it was from, I thought it was from an Indian author. When I, I first started learning Hellenistic astrology, I studied Indian astrology at the same time because there's a lot of parallels 
due to interactions between the Hellenistic and Indian traditions 2,000 years ago. But there was this notion of like the natal chart indicating something about the natal promise, like that there are certain promises or certain indications that are made in the natal chart, but they're not always active. But instead, at some point, they'll become awakened in the life of the native when the planets become activated as time lords through the different time lord techniques. And perfections is definitely one of those time lord techniques that tells you when certain placements are going to become awakened and sort of unleashed in the life of the native. All right. Um, Beth asks, I have a day chart with Jupiter in the second house. Is Jupiter diminished by being in the night? No, if it's a day chart, Jupiter is the most positive planet in your chart. I think you're thinking about the rejoicing condition of what side of the horizon it's on, but that's a secondary consideration, and we'll get into that later, but it's not as important. You need to just focus on the primary consideration, which is, is it a day chart or a night chart? If it's a day chart, then Jupiter is automatically the most positive planet in your chart, versus if it's a night chart, then Venus is the most positive planet in your chart. Okay, just reading other questions. Yeah, we'll get to the hemisphere emphasis in just a minute because that's a big, that's it's really a big thing that trips people up actually, and I, I I wish I could erase that from people's initial learning of it, and that's why I haven't introduced it so far at this point because it's not as crucial as people sometimes think it is, but I will get to that soon. Okay. All right. Let me get back. Let me do a few more example charts and then I'll get back to uh, ask, answering some questions here in just a moment. Okay. So back to my slides. There's that example. Let's move on to the next example. Um, so, doing some. So, first one was like was client charts. Here's some celebrity charts. This is the timed birth chart of Ernest Hemingway. He was born with Virgo rising. And the sun and cancer in the eleventh house, so we know it's a day chart because it's in the top half of the chart. Um, so we immediately look to the most positive planet in his chart, and we find Jupiter in the third house of siblings, communication, and travel. And we find the most negative planet being Mars in the first house, which represents the body and physical vitality of the native. So, most basic statement we could say for Ernest Hemingway's chart then is like good things in the third house of communication and bad things in the first house of the body and physical vitality. So as we most of us know, Ernest Hemingway, of course, was a gifted writer um, who uh, is very well known, which is very fitting for his Jupiter in the third house placement of communication. Um, what most people don't know is he, he's actually characterized as also having a strangely accident-prone life. So, for example, he was wounded by mortar fire in World War One, where he served in World War One. Um, he was also in two successive plane crashes. Um, he suffered a serious head injury at one point. Later in life, he suffered serious mental and physical deterioration um, as a result of a genetic genetic issue that he inherited from his father. And later, he ended up actually committing suicide by shooting himself in the head. So that's obviously kind of an extreme example, but um, again, 
it just emphasizes this notion of focusing on the most positive planet and making a blanket statement of some of the most positive things happening in that house versus um, focusing on the most negative planet and sometimes that bringing some of the most, in this instance, very extremely negative things to that house. The first house being the house of the body and physical vitality, but also the house of the self. And we're going to come back to that concept of the first house and the self later in the lecture to sort of expand on why that is or what that means. Um, there's a lot of different overlapping reasons for this, the, the specific manifestation of this in Ernest Hemingway's life. So I don't want to freak people out too much because obviously that's a very extreme example. And there's sort of compounding factors in his chart that indicate why it went the way it did in his life. And not everybody that has like the most difficult planet in the first house is going to have that extreme manifestation. But we have to Sometimes when doing predictive astrology or doing traditional astrology, we have to understand what the extremes are and establish what the extremes are. That way we can then also establish what the more moderate or what the, the phases in between are. And so sometimes that's what's helpful about looking at the extreme examples is being able to establish what the furthest extent of like the worst possible thing is that could happen versus what's the best possible thing. And then figure out where most people fall, which is somewhere in between. All right, so that's Ernest Hemingway, <clears throat> very simple example. This is a personal chart. This is somebody with Taurus rising. And the sun is in Scorpio, but it's probably above the degree of the descendant, so it's a day chart. The most negative planet in the chart is Mars, which is also in Scorpio in the seventh house of relationships. And the most positive planet is Jupiter, which is in the eighth house of shared resources, other people's money, and inheritance. So, what ended up happening is um, the native was married in her 20s and had um, children with uh, her husband, but then the husband ended up, ended up dying of cancer. Relatively early in their marriage, after like five or six years of marriage, which left her with two children to raise. So, one of the most negative things that basically happened in this person's life is that she lost her husband tragically to cancer relatively early in her life when she was only 30 years old. She was actually in a seventh house perfection year at that point, which is activating that Mars in the seventh house in a day chart and therefore indicating the loss of the partner. What was interesting is that um, only about a year or maybe less than a year before her partner died, he actually ended up signing up for a life insurance policy shortly before he became sick with cancer. And as a result of that, she inherited a decent bit of money after he died, which allowed her to go on to raise their children and put herself through college and then eventually help to support them to some extent through college as well once they grew up. So th that is the manifestation of the Jupiter in a day chart in the eighth house, which indicates um, the partner's resources, but also inheritance, and especially sometimes inheritance from the death of others in a person's life. So in this case, it was like a positive financial windfall that came as a result of a negative event, which was the death of the partner, as indicated by Mars in a day chart in the seventh house. Yeah, um, Drew 
Levante points out that it seems important that the ruler of the second house is conjunct the sect benefic. That is a good point. Mercury is the ruler of the second house of finances, and it's actually in the eighth house in applying conjunction to Jupiter. Super important. Lots of other things. Venus is also overcoming all the Sagittarius planets, and Mars is an aversion to them. The moon is also there, which is important. There's lots of different details that I'm sort of like leaving out of the overall analysis of some of these different placements, um, but we'll actually see some of that come into play later when it comes to the rulers of the houses and why that can be important in one of my next example charts, I believe. Let's take a look at that. Um, here's the birth chart of Johnny Depp. The main thing I wanted to demonstrate here and point out is just the malefic contrary to the sect. So he was born with a day chart. He has Leo rising, the sun in Gemini in the 11th house. Therefore, the most negative planet in this chart is Mars, which is in Virgo in the second house of finances, which initially seems kind of weird. And you kind of wonder about, and actually I'd used his chart as an example for years, but was never sure why Mars in the second house would be problematic for him. Because as far as I knew, or as far as anybody knew, um, just from the public standpoint, you know, he was a millionaire and he was making millions and millions and millions of dollars <clears throat> as an actor, especially once he landed the role um, in the Pirates of the Caribbean series starting in the mid-2000s, which went on to make just ridiculous amounts of money and that he came back for for many sequels. So he was making tons and tons of money from that series. But what was interesting is a few years ago, when I was working on this lecture, Rolling Stone uh, magazine published this article titled The Trouble with Johnny Depp. And it basically did this sort of um, interesting discussion about his financial issues and how he was really struggling with major financial issues at the time. And some of the quotes that I pulled from the article that were really interesting were kind of describing this Mars placement in the second house in a day chart and some of the ways that that manifested as problematic or difficult for him. So some of the quotes were, quote, it appears that Depp may suffer from a compulsive spending disorder. So I thought that was really interesting, Mars-type signification, the idea of like compulsion or being like quick or um, yeah, having like impetuous in terms of uh, one's spending is a very like Mars-type thing. Elsewhere, it said, quote, Depp's situation was all about Hollywood math, where the star spends what they think they've made, not taking into account taxes and agent and manager fees. And then late, later, it said, the lawsuit suggests that Depp has a $2 million, $2 million a month compulsory spending disorder, offering bond mots like, wine is not an investment if you drink it as soon as you buy it. So it's just this whole interesting article, and I'm only giving you like a piece of it here, but um, obviously it relates partially to that Mars in the second house placement and the notion that that could be an area of his life that he doesn't have, in fact, struggle with. But it's also an interesting sort of cautionary tale about how sometimes when you're doing celebrity charts, you don't necessarily know or the public doesn't necessarily see everything that's going on. And sometimes the astrology itself can be descriptive of something that's happening, even if you don't realize it. Or in some instances, even if the native themselves doesn't realize it, it may be something that they don't recognize or that they don't, that they have sort of like a blind spot to in a way or may not um, be fully cognizant of or aware of 
at different points in their life. Check the questions. Yeah, we will talk about having the sect benefic and malefic in the same house, and I think I have some examples of that coming up here in just a minute. Okay, so here's the birth chart of Lisa Marie Presley, which is one of my favorite examples to use. She's the daughter of Elvis Presley, the famous singer. Um, he died when she was super young, and she inherited his estate, which was worth uh, millions of dollars, and she inherited the entire estate the day that she turned 25 years old. So she was born with Leo rising, and the sun is in Aquarius in the seventh whole sign house, but it's just barely above the degree of the descendant, so it's still a day chart. So it's a day chart, and she has Jupiter and Virgo in the second house. So this is an interesting contrast with Johnny Depp because she has the most positive planet in the chart in the second house of personal finances, and she basically inherited uh, an estate worth like $100 million when she was 25 years old. So financial matters, at least initially, were one of the most positive or, or areas of her life that came the easiest to her or where she had good fortune in some sense initially in her life. What's interesting, however, though, is the most difficult planet in her chart is Mars in Pisces in a day chart in the eighth house. And the eighth house represents um, inheritance, but also other people's resources. And it can also sometimes be extended to other things like taxes. So this sets up an interesting issue, not just with Mars in the eighth house of inheritance and other people's money and taxes, but also with the rulers of the houses, because the ruler of her second house, she has Virgo on the second house, and the ruler of that house is Mercury, and um, the ruler of the eighth house itself is Jupiter. So there's this mutual reception or this exchange between the second and the eighth houses as well. Which, set, which sets things up in basically tying up the most positive and negative things in her life in that area. Not just in terms of finances, but of course also just in the fact that her father died when she was relatively young, and the eighth house is also the place of not just inheritance, but also mortality. So um, in recent years, there's been some stories that have come out about um, her spending sort of similarly to Johnny Depp's being out of control and something about potentially either squandering $100 million or perhaps getting involved in financial schemes or getting involved in partnerships um, that alleged, allegedly, according to her, that may have like scammed her out of money or, or something like that. So we have both the most positive planet but also the most negative planet tied up in this tense opposition and therefore causing some issues at different points in the life. Uh, another example, famous example, this is the birth chart of Maurizio Gucci, who is the grandson of the founder of the Gucci fashion empire. And in the 1980s, he inherited his father's 50% stake of the family business. And what's interesting is this is a night chart. He was born with Cancer rising with the Sun in Libra in the fourth house. So it's a night chart. And Venus is placed in the second house in a night chart. So the most positive planet in his chart is Venus in the second. And the ruler of the second house, we see Leo on the cusp of the second house, and the ruler of the second is the son, which is placed in the fourth house of the parents and the father and the family. 
and the ruler of the fourth house itself is Venus, which is placed in the second house of finances and money and personal possessions. So he has a, a mutual reception between the ruler of the fourth and the ruler of the second, showing a close connection between those two areas of the life. And basically, he inherited millions and millions of dollars from his from his father. So pretty straightforward and pretty literal um, example. There's some not so great stuff about what ended up happening with that later in his life in terms of losing it and uh, other things like that, but I, I won't go into. But just for the sake of this, just the idea of positive things happening in the area of personal finances and that being tied into his family's inheritance or family wealth due to Venus being the ruler of the fourth house. So pretty straightforward. Um, this is the birth chart of Elliot Smith. He was born with Taurus rising. He was a musician who was born with Taurus rising and the sun in Leo. So this is a night chart. The most positive planet is Venus in the third house in this night chart. Night chart, and what's weird about that is not just um, the third house being the place of communication and Venus being the planet of like art and artistry, and him ending up expressing that through. Uh, being a, a musician, basically, and through art, artistry, through communication, um, but also if you look at his biography, he had some interesting other third house significations that came out prominently in his life. So one of them is that he had several siblings who he had very close and very positive relationships with, which is a, a characteristic sometimes of if a person has benefic planets or the most benefic planet in the third house. That sometimes it indicates that they'll have support and help from siblings or other relatives. Additionally, um, one of his most prized personal possessions for a person who is otherwise not big into personal possessions, but it was his car. And he would actually um, test out new songs that he would have written by driving around, uh, by recording them and then driving around in his car, listening to them first, or sometimes first showing them. To other people by driving around in his car with them and listening to the music. So there's this interesting, like, third house focus of short distance travel that came up over and over again in his life. Um, unfortunately, with Saturn in the first house, the first house being the house of self, the body, and physical vitality, but the first house is also the place of mental um, vitality as well. And it has a serious mental focus in the first house in addition to a physical focus. And um, with Saturn there in the night chart, he actually suffered from depression and alcoholism and drug dependence, and eventually ended up committing suicide at the age of 34, um, partially due to that. So it's kind of tied up in not just that Saturn in the first house, but it's the Saturn in the first house with the moon, and the moon-Saturn combinations can sometimes lead to depression. Saturn overcoming and squaring the sun and Mercury and Leo in the fourth house and so on and so forth, some, some sort of like offsetting or compounding factors that are making things more difficult. But again, just showing you a combination of a real-life example where positive things were happening in the third house and some challenging things were happening in the first house. Um, I, another example that's kind of interesting, also a little bit depressing, is Britney Spears. Um, this is an example that I've been using for like almost 10 years now. And so it's interesting because this has become back in the news recently, where Britney Spears was born with a night chart with the sun in Sagittarius in the third house 
and Libra rising. The most positive planet in her chart is Venus, which is in Capricorn in the fourth house, and that is also the ruler of the ascendant. Um, so Venus in the fourth house is the most positive planet, and then Saturn in the first house in the night chart is the most negative placement. So this is a similar example, kind of a little bit like Elliot Smith, where Saturn in the first house in a night chart can sometimes manifest as issues with depression or like mental issues. And in 2007, she famously suffered a major mental breakdown after a really tumultuous period in her life, and she ended up being committed to a psychiatric ward and placed eventually under the temporary, what was supposed to be a temporary conservatorship of her father. Um, but it's been like 12 years at this point, ever since she was originally made put in that situation since 2008. And what this does is it, it then gives him complete control over all of her assets, as well as control over pretty much all other aspects of her life, such as what she does with her career, who she spends time with, her schedule, and everything else. So this is a really tricky example because it's tied in with the rulers of the houses, um, the ruler of the ascendant, which typically represents the native, and the ruler of the fourth house, which typically represents the parents or the family, or in this instance, probably more specifically the father. And this weird sort of exchange and mutual reception between those two planets, where Venus is in Saturn's sign in the fourth house, and Saturn is in Venus's sign in the first house. And we're seeing then this close connection between the first house of the self and the fourth house of the father and the parents and the family. So I don't want to like speculate or get into like opinions. And I know there's a lot of stuff going on with that court case recently because she's recently trying to challenge the conservatorship of his, of her father and saying that it's become like overbearing and unwanted and that sketchy stuff is happening with that. And I don't really know what the case is myself, but it's interesting seeing that indicated so literally in her chart here with the fourth house and the first house being such major focal points in her life. Um, and I think we can sort of understand why uh, her issues with initially some of the mental issues and then eventually the struggles with her father's conservatorship has come to dominate such a large chunk of her life of basically the last 12 years. Um, somebody asked, is Saturn's exaltation in Libra a mitigating factor? Yeah, normally Saturn's exaltation is a mitigating factor. If Saturn's in its domicile, so Capricorn or Aquarius, or if it's in its exaltation, that is typically a mitigating factor so that things are not as bad as they could be. So there's probably like a worst case scenario of Britney Spears' situation where maybe it's mitigated to some extent because she's, you know, whatever, a millionaire. And um, even if she's in a difficult situation that's negative, maybe there's some way in which it's not as bad as it could be, versus there could be a situation where, let's say, Saturn's not exalted or this chart is configured in a more negative way. And perhaps the conservatorship or, or whatever version of that is even more negative than it could be in this instance. Yeah, well, one of the things that's funny right now that's happening is she's trying to break free of it. And we can see that happening right now, partially because Saturn has been transiting through Capricorn for the past three years now, since December of 2017. So Saturn st recently stationed direct. 
um, on what September 29th, very late in Capricorn, right on top of her Venus. I think Saturn stationed at like 26 or 27 Capricorn. So we can see that focus right now and that sort of like push where she's having problems in that area and, and tensions with her father and trying to break free of that. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that in the next few months between now and let's say December when Saturn is about to finally leave Capricorn uh, and complete its three-year transit through that sign. Shakira says it's stationed right at 25 degrees on her Venus. Yeah. And during that time there was like protests and the hashtag like I think like free Britney or something like that was trending on Twitter and there was this big push to like, you know, like force the authorities to take the case more seriously and take her attempts to get out of the conservatorship more more seriously. So there's been a lot of stuff going on with that recently. It'll be interesting to see how how it turns out. Hopefully, hopefully for the best. All right. Um, so that's an interesting example. So that last example takes on it brings up a really important point, which is what happens when the planet rules the ascendant. Is basically that. Um, whatever planet is ruling the ascendant in the birth chart, the native will take on the agency of that planet in some way. And if it's a benefic, then it'll do benefic things. And if it's a malefic, it will sometimes do whatever the malefic things are that are indicated by that planet. So the main reason I bring this up is because the main area in which it usually comes up is when a malefic, or specifically when the most uh, difficult malefic in the chart is the ruler of the ascendant, it indicates sometimes that the native can cause or become the source of problems in their own life, or that somehow the native takes on the agency of the malefic and like carries out the duties of the malefic in some way themselves, as a as, as opposed to the alternative scenario which is like some external force in the native's life you know comes in and causes problems or somebody else in the native's life somehow causes them problems which is typically what happens when the malefic is ruled is ruling one of the other houses in the chart then whatever house it rules will tell you the other actor in the native's life that causes problems for them in some way so if it ruled like the fifth house, it could be like the native's children. Or if it ruled the fourth house, it could be the native's parents, which might be what we're looking at partially here with the Britney Spears example, where Saturn is the ruler of the fourth house and it's in the first house. So it's like causing um, feelings of restriction and oppression and things coming from the agency of the father, the parents, or what have you. So what I'm talking about here though is when the malefic is the ruler of the ascendant, sometimes the native it's it's usually two one of two scenarios, or sometimes both, but these are the two main scenarios I've seen. Sometimes either the native's own actions become problematic if the most difficult planet in the chart is the ruler of the ascendant. So the native themselves might bring about problems in their own life. Other times the problems come from within the native, so the problems come from the native themselves, but not as a result of deliberate actions, but just as something that is somehow connected with or emanating from the native in some way. 
and I'll show you two or three example charts to, to demonstrate what I mean, because I know that sounds a little bit vague, but it's actually a pretty cool and pretty important interpretive principle in some charts. All right, here's one example, and this isn't super um, concrete example. It is to me because I sort of know the guy and like lived through it, but it's a little bit harder to explain. So this is the birth chart for Alan White, who was born with Aries rising and the Sun in Capricorn in the tenth house. So it's a day chart, and Mars is in Aries in the first house, ruling the ascendant. And is because the day chart is also the most difficult planet in the chart, whereas the most positive planet in the chart is Jupiter in Gemini in the third house. So um, some of you will remember, since this is a podcast episode, that Alan was an astrologer. He's one of the early people that was involved in the revival of Hellenistic astrology, and he was an associate of Project Hindsight, and he, he lectured and taught Hellenistic astrology. And was one of the people that influenced me early on and led to Hellenistic astrology being taught at Kepler. So, um, Alan was a really cool and really funny guy. Um, he was actually a, a Green Beret in the United States Army Special Forces, and he was a soldier and was involved in the war in Vietnam in the 1960s or so. Um, so he he actually took on the agency of Mars in that as the ruler of the ascendant, and that he was actually a soldier. And of course, soldiers and wars and things like that are one of the significations of Mars. So of course, one of the other significations of Mars is that it can be very direct and it can be some somewhat prickly or somewhat Martian. And what was funny about Alan is that he was very gruff, he was very direct, very assertive. Um, sometimes he could be kind of combative. Sometimes he could be kind of coarse or kind of rude or vulgar, but he could also be very honest and very forthright. So it was kind of funny because during his own lifetime, Alan had kind of like a mixed reputation in the astrological community because he could be very like direct and very sometimes vulgar and sometimes kind of coarse. Um, but he would also always give it to you straight and be kind of a straight shooter. And I was kind of nervous releasing that lecture of his. I forget what episode it was, but it was just earlier this year in like March. I released his intro to Hellenistic astrology lecture, and I was kind of nervous releasing it because he was his usual like personality and usually self, usual self, which he was this kind of Martian ex special forces guy that was very gruff and very direct and sometimes kind of um, coarse. But he was also a good teacher and he was a very good communicator. And he was good at breaking down basic concepts and teaching them to you in a pretty straightforward fashion. And I, I partially attribute that to his Jupiter in the third house in a day chart in terms of his ability to communicate very clearly and to be a very effective um, teacher and a very effective astrologer, basically. But I was actually nervous about releasing that episode just because for some people that sort of personality traits can come off as very brusque or somewhat negatively and he he could very easily like ruffle feathers during his time in the astrological community but for the most part it seemed like that lecture was received much more positively than i expected and a lot of people you know appreciated that and it was like a welcome breath of fresh air so um that's part of the example where for Alan, part of what it was is that he took on the agency of the malefic in that he 
sort of manifested those Martian traits himself. And some of those were positive traits that we can associate with Mars, and others were more negative traits that you might associate with Mars that became like personality quirks for him just in general. So that's one example of what I mean by when the malefic rules the ascendant, the native sometimes takes on the agency of the malefic in some way. And sometimes Alan could get into trouble or could accidentally cause problems in his own life just as a result of like being a Martian type character and sometimes ruffling feathers um, in the community as a result of that, almost accidentally or inadvertently. Another example of that, um, this is the birth chart of Ted Kennedy. So he was born with Capricorn rising and the sun in Pisces in the third house. So this is a night chart. And he had Saturn in Capricorn in the first house in a night chart. So um, his story is really complicated and tricky, and I don't want to get into like go into too many details with it. But the short version of that of it is that he was the younger brother of President John F. Kennedy and um, Robert F. Kennedy. And um, after his two brothers were assassinated, first John F. Kennedy, of course, famously in 1963, and then Robert Kennedy, when he was running for president, I think in 1968, was later assassinated as well. Um, Ted Kennedy was like the third and became the next in line and was expected to step up and to run for the presidency and probably actually would have had a pretty good shot at becoming president. Um, at that point in time, after those losses of his siblings suddenly left him as the the next Kennedy in line, in some sense. So, unfortunately, what ended up happening is that that opportunity to become president was kind of ruined when he went to a party one night and he left the party with um, a young woman, and he was probably intoxicated, and he was driving somewhere. And they ended up driving like off of a bridge and into the water. And the woman that he had in his passenger seat ended up dying and ended up drowning, I think, in the car. And he he somehow ended up surviving. And uh yeah, there was a whole story after that point. So as a result of this accident, though, um, it became such a big deal that it pretty much killed any chances that he had of winning the presidency and becoming president. So he still ended up going on to have a long and successful career in the United States Senate, but as a result of his own personal actions and his own personal errors as a result of that incident, it probably tanked uh, any future like prospects that he had of becoming president at that point. So I use that as an example just of, of an instance where in this instance, um, a major, you know, obviously he had other major tragedies in his life that are indicated by other parts of the chart, especially as it's tied in with his third house and the death of his siblings, uh, having the ruler of the third house of siblings in the eighth house of death, and it's opposed by Mars uh, in a night chart as one of the indicators for that. But there's also this separate instance where this really famous instance of uh, an unfortunate accident that happened in his life that was partially due to his own actions being something that negatively impacted him 
Um, obviously, we all have instances like that to some extent where we all make mistakes, but this was one where the, the course of his life and what could have happened in his life was changed in such a major, decisive way by such a, a major uh, mistake and a major incident um, that it stands out in a much broader, like universal sense as being somehow characteristic of his life in some major way. So that's that's part of what I'm getting at in that example in terms of how sometimes when the malefic that is the most negative planet in the chart rules the ascendant, the native can take on the agency of the malefic in that sometimes through their own mistakes, they can bring out bring about some of the greatest challenges or difficulties or or setbacks in their own life. And that's a, a very concrete example of what I what I mean by that. All right, just one more example. So this is the birth chart of Michael J. Fox. Um, he has Aquarius rising, and the sun is in Gemini in the fifth house. So he was born also with a night chart. And um, Venus is the most positive planet, it's in Taurus in the fourth house. And the most negative planet is Saturn, which is located in Capricorn in the twelfth house. And it's also the ruler of the ascendant because he has Aquarius rising. So the ruler of the ascendant is Saturn in a night chart in the twelfth house. So Michael J. Fox was a successful actor in the 1980s, going into the 1990s, who ended up developing um, Parkinson's disease at the height of his career in his late 20s and early 30s. And he actually started developing the symptoms and exhibiting them, and I think it was eventually diagnosed during the course of his Saturn return when Saturn was going through Capricorn, so activating that ruler of the Ascendant in the 12th house. And then um, that kind of threw his acting career off for many years. He would later make a comeback once he was able to get some of the, the symptoms under control to a certain extent due to different medications and things like that, but it became from that point forward a lifelong struggle uh, from his Saturn, the time of his Saturn return onwards. So in this instance, it's less of a with Saturn ruling the ascendant in a night chart, it's less of an instance like in the previous example where it's clear that he did something wrong himself. And instead it's more of an instance where the issue came from within him in that it was like a physical issue that came out of his body in some way, or a physical issue with his body, let's say, in developing this disease. But it wasn't necessarily something that was due to some action or some mistake that he took, but it was just something that did still have to do with um, him or coming from within, within him rather than something that came from without or that came from another person in his life. like. Let's say his father or his partner or his friends or, or or other people that are indicated by the other 12 houses. Because it was connected with the ascendant, it was something that came from within him in some way, even though it was not a result of personal actions. So that's that. There's other things we could go into in this chart, and I think I do use it a few times for different things in the Hellenistic course, but that's the main thing that I want to do to illustrate here when I mean that. Sometimes when the most difficult planet is the ruler of the ascendant, the issue comes from within rather than from without. All right, how are we doing for questions? Does anybody have any questions at this point? Um, 
Drew says, it's interesting how the sixth house lord is the moon in such an excellent condition. I wonder how that figures into his story with illness. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky because sometimes we have this issue about like what's a sixth house illness versus what is a twelfth house illness, and sometimes sometimes it comes down to this distinction of sixth house things being like more like Martian type things, which can be um, sudden uh, injuries and short term, you know, uh, type things versus 12th house things being more like long-term, lifelong um, illnesses and diseases or battles that a person struggles with or has recurring issues with. And sometimes that may be the dis distinction there when we're seeing like a difference between you know, a nice looking sixth house versus a more problematic looking 12th house in this instance. Uh, Taylor says, I wonder how he's doing now during his second Saturn return. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I saw some stuff with him. They did like a Back to the Future celebration thing, I think a few years ago for like the 30th anniversary or something like that. And it seemed like he was doing pretty well. I know there was a period, what, in a, a past in the past decade or so that he was um, acting again on like sitcoms on television and stuff and was having kind of like a comeback for a while. Uh, Khalid says, I'm un I'm uncertain how to interpret malefics when they are in their joys. Is it better for a night chart native to have Saturn in the 12th house because it's not configured to her ascendant, or worse, because the 12th house is the place of bad spirit? For the joys, I don't think the joys are necessarily always, they're not like the signs of the zodiac where they're houses for the planets, where the planets are better in those houses necessarily. And I wouldn't think of them like that as dignities. But instead, just the joys are um, houses that the planets are connected with that you can derive ideas for what the significations of those houses are. And that's really all you're supposed to do for the most part with the planetary joys is think of them in that context as useful um, tools for understanding the deeper meanings and implications of those houses primarily rather than as things that are like um, strengthening or, or weakening factors per se. All right, let's move on and let me see where we're at next in this lecture. Oh yeah, so this is the question that everybody always has. What happens when the most positive planet and the most negative planet are in the same sign? Well, it basically just means what you would think it means, which is that the native experiences great highs and great lows in that area of the person's life. So there often ends up being a mixture of extremes of good and bad fortune, of success and failure, of like highs and lows in the same area of the native's life, so that they they experience both basically extremes in that one area of the life rather than in separate areas of the life. To give some examples, this is the birth chart of um, the musician Kurt Cobain, who was born with. 19 degrees of Virgo rising. The sun is at one degree of Pisces in the seventh whole sign house, but because it's 18 degrees below the degree of the ascendant, the degree of the descendant, that means he was born after sunset with a firmly night chart. So this is definitely a night chart, and he has 
Venus in Pisces in the seventh house of relationships, but he also has Saturn in Pisces in the seventh house of relationships at the same time. And the two planets are actually conjunct because Venus is at 26 Pisces and Saturn is at 28 Pisces. So um, the basic delineation then, if we have the most positive planet and the most negative planet in the seventh house, is we would expect some of the most positive things to happen in the native's life in the context of relationships, and also some of the most negative things in the native's life to happen in the context of relationships. And that very simple, very basic delineation is actually pretty starting, startlingly true for Kurt Cobain. So a large part of his adult life was focused on relationships. And he desperately wanted a partner, although he encountered several major disappointments in relationships and setbacks in relationships early on. So, on the one hand, he drew a lot of inspiration from his relationships when writing certain songs. And you can see this show up in many different areas of his lyrics. But on the other hand, um, he and his wife, uh, Courtney Love, were said to have, quote, bonded through drug use, through their use of heroin, which eventually ended up contributing in some part to his eventual suicide. So there's like this positive factor in relationships, and there's this this level where relationships were important to and inspired some of his you know greatest work and, and most lasting contributions to the world. But then on the other hand, there's this side where he kind of got in not a super healthy relationship where some of their negative tendencies reinforced themselves or reinforced each other in the relationship and it sort of spiraled into um, being one of the contributing factors for for his death eventually at the age of 27 years old. So great highs and great lows. Um, Ray Rollins says, and with the ascendant ruler there too contributed to his negative tendencies, um, the ascendant ruler there, like when the ruler of the ascendant is located in the seventh, it tends to just show greater focus and greater emphasis on that house or that area of the life. So in his case, that's the area of relationships, having um, Mercury ruling the ascendant with Virgo rising and Mercury being in Pisces in the seventh whole sign house. So it just shows greater emphasis or greater focus on that area of the life, as well as um, like greater attention towards that area in terms of it being part of the native's overall life focus, that somehow relationships would be part of the destination and sort of the important topic that his life would be navigated or guided towards, since the ruler of the ascendant is sort of like the captain of the ship or it's the planet that sets a de- destination for the native's life. It's interesting that it's also the ruler of the 10th house, house of career. And then, of course, some of the career decisions get motivated not just by relationships, but also impacted by his eventual like marriage to Courtney Love as well, who part of the reason he was super into her is because she was also like a musician and everything else. Yeah, there's a lot of complicated things we could get into about like Mercury's condition and the fact that it's in fall and um, that it is an it's actually an evening star, uh, so it's of the sect in favor. Uh, it's just barely outside of the 15 degree range. It has some positive things going for it in that it's co-present with Venus and has a sign-based trine with Jupiter that it's like applying to. 
but it's also co-present with Saturn, which is problematic and constraining and somewhat depressing or depressive for Mercury at the same time. That co-presence with Saturn and everything applying to Saturn is really tricky because, especially when a planet is applying within three degrees to the most negative planet in the chart, it ends up being a condition of what's called maltreatment or affliction, where Saturn is able to negate or corrupt or fully say no to the significations of that planet. And especially in the case of his Venus, that's really problematic. So lots of different layers we could go into. I think I use Kurt's chart like a bunch of different times in the Hellenistic course. So that's something I think it, like the triplicity rulers of the sectlite lecture that comes up as well as in the bonification and maltreatment lecture. All right, so let's go on to the next example. Oh yeah, um, this is a birth chart of Christopher Reeve. So um, he had Leo rising and he had a night chart with the sun in Libra in the third house and a stellium of other planets in Libra, including Mercury, Saturn, and Venus, also in Libra in the third house. The third house, of course, is the place of communication, but also short-distance travel and siblings. So Christopher Reeve famously, of course, became a quadriplegic after a horse-riding accident, and he ended up being paralyzed from the neck down. So Part of where that's coming from and part of why this is important and interesting is that not only is the ruler of his ascendant there, so he has Leo rising and he has the sun in the third house um, in the place of short distance travel and communication, but he has Saturn there in a night chart, so the most difficult planet in his chart is in the third house, therefore indicating major obstacles or difficulties or setbacks or potentially misfortunes in that area of the life at the same time. So we get the negative thing, which is that at some point in his life, he eventually had a major incident, which left him sort of immobilized and un un unable to move, which is a very Saturn-type signification in the negative sense, in the most extreme sense. Uh, but eventually, we all also get some of the Venus positive significations as well, which is Venus is there in a night chart in Libra in the third house. And what ended up happening is that he ended up using his fame to draw attention towards people with spinal cord injuries and disabilities, and ended up founding with his wife, Dana, the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation, which is quote-unquote dedicated to curing spinal cord injury by funding innovative research and improving the quality of life for people living with paralysis through grants, information, and advocacy. And eventually, um, in the years following, here's from an article, in the years following his injury, Christopher did more to promote research on spinal cord injury and other neurological disorders than any other person before or since. Um, and I think eventually, through some of those donations, different things have been developed that have had a positive impact on people who have spinal cord injuries or are um, quadriplegic like he was. So in that, we kind of see some of the different themes of extreme difficulties with Saturn there in the third house, and in that instance, like limitations and misfortune when it came to mobility and short-distance travel, which is the third house signification, but also positive things developing in that area as well, and, and his eventual contribution of his life in some universal or total sense being something that was ultimately positive in that area rather than just than just personally 
or purely negative in some sense. All right, so again, that's another example of extremes of positive and negative in the same house when you have the most positive and negative planets in that house. Um, there was a really similar example. This is um, an example of a French businessman who was the former director of a champagne company, and he was very well off, um, Philip Pozo de Borgo, who there was actually a, a movie that came out about him a few years ago. So he has can he had cancer rising and a day chart with the sun in the eighth house. And he had Mars and Venus and Jupiter and Pisces in the ninth whole sign house. So the most positive planet is Jupiter and the most negative planet is Mars. And they're both in the ninth house of um, long distance travel and foreigners and foreign places. So what happened is that in 1993, he became quadriplegic after a paragliding accident. And this was shortly after his wife had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. So he fell into this really deep depression at the time, and he was saved eventually, or he was only saved, due to the help of his caretaker who was um, from Algeria. So what ended up happening, or the short version of this, I think I have a much longer version of this in the Hellenistic course, but the short version is that we see the paragliding accident coming from Mars in the ninth house, because he was actually in a foreign country when he experienced this um, accident and was injured and became para paraplegic um, or quadriplegic with Mars in the ninth house in a day chart, but then also seeing help and assistance and finding basically the will to live again from uh, a guy that helped him out that came from a foreign country, which is a very literal and seems kind of, kind of abstract, but it's actually a very literal signification that you will often see from the ninth house is either when people have a focus on ninth house things, it either ends up manifesting as like travel and being in foreign places and foreign countries, or sometimes it ends up manifesting very literally as interaction with people who are from a country that is for or a culture in some instances that is foreign from your own or that is experienced or perceived as foreign in some way. So in his instance, we had both extremely negative things coming from that area of his life as well as extremely positive things. So there's a bunch of other obviously like complicated details you can get into here, like the ruler of his ascendance in the 12th house. It's being overcome by Mars and Venus and Jupiter. Uh, additionally, it's not just Mars and Jupiter that are in the ninth house, but Venus is there as well, and that's kind of helping to offset things. So there's lots of other stuff going on here, but Again, the main takeaway here is just extremes of extremely positive things and sometimes extremely negative things coming from the same same house. All right, so I think those are all of my um, two planets, most positive and most negative planets in the same house examples. Does anybody have any questions about that before I move on to, I think, the final section of this lecture, which is just about mitigating factors? Okay, I think we're good. All right, so let's move on to Khalid says, would you say if Mars was adhering to Jupiter in that chart, 
rather than separating from Jupiter, would definitely have the upper hand. Um, I think that would have been more positive, actually, because in my understanding and reconstruction of the bonification and maltreatment conditions, if the malefic was earlier in zodiacal order and, and applying to Jupiter, then Jupiter would be bonifying Mars, and that would be a very positive thing, or a much more positive thing for Mars. In this instance, it's almost too bad that Mars is on the other side of Jupiter, because then it's not able to be mitigated or downplayed as much as it, it could. There's still positive things going on with Mars and being co-present in the same sign as two benefics, and almost having a form of reception with Jupiter even though it's separating, but I think it would have actually been better if Mars was applying to Jupiter rather than separating from it. All right, so let's talk about mitigating factors. So there's a bunch of different mitigating factors that can offset things, and some of those mitigating factors can be rejoicing conditions related to sect, which I'll go into in a second. Another can be a planet when it's in its own sign or exaltation or is in a mutual reception with another planet can majorly mitigate planets, including the malefic that's contrary to the sect. Additionally, a planet being bonafide or maltreated, which is a whole other class of like planetary conditions, which I was almost kind of just referring to one of them, adherence, with the idea of Mars applying to Jupiter within three degrees, would be a major mitigating factor. And there's seven of those conditions of bonification and maltreatment that I talk about in my book and in the course. Another major mitigating factor that I ran into all the time is the presence of reception. So if you have a planet that's in bad shape due to sect, but it has reception with its domicile lord, that's oftentimes a major mitigating factor. Or if you have a planet that's being afflicted by another planet uh, as a result of sect, like the most malefic planet in the chart is afflicting another planet, if the planet that's being afflicted has reception with that malefic, it's going to seriously take the edge off of that affliction and make it so that it's not typically the worst case scenario. So these are all things that you need to pay attention to because it can mitigate the outcomes and make them more moderate or in other instances more extreme depending on whether it's a positive or negative mitigation. So some some mitigations are positive and other mitigations can actually make things worse if it's just heaping more difficulties on the placement rather than um, alleviating them. So understand that that's what I mean when I mean mitigation is just something that's pushing things the opposite direction from the way it's inclined towards in the chart by default. Um, in reality, when you're applying these considerations, most charts will have multiple mitigating factors present. So you rarely get a chart where it's just a straightforward instance of like, most positive planet, most negative planet, and there's nothing else going on. Typically, there's a bunch of different factors that are also present that you also have to take into account. And for the purpose of simplicity and just um, teaching this technique and giving you the gist of it, I'm kind of skipping over some of those things because typically these are things that I would introduce uh, in stages in like different parts of teaching Hellenistic astrology through my course or what have you. But there are multiple mitigating factors that you have to take into account. I would recommend checking out episode 28 of the Astrology Podcast titled Mitigating Factors in Traditional Astrology. 
I don't have a video version of this episode because it was done before I did video versions, but it's an excellent discussion on different mitigating factors that are used in traditional astrology that I did with Michael Ofek um, several years ago, I guess many years ago now, maybe four or five years ago. So check that out for more information on some of these mitigating factors. One of the mitigating factors I have to mention is sect-related, what's called rejoicing conditions. And the rejoicing conditions, there's two of them, and they relate to other factors that you can take into account that are connected with sect in one of two ways. So one of them is what side of the horizon the planet is on, and the rule is this, that the diurnal or daytime planets prefer to be in the top half of the chart when it's a day chart, and they prefer to be in the bottom half of the chart when it's a night chart. Conversely, the nocturnal planets prefer to be in the bottom half of the chart when it's a day chart, and they prefer to be in the top half of the chart when it's a night chart. So this is what's known as one of the rejoicing conditions. Um, it's mentioned by Valens and other authors, and it's a sect-related rejoicing condition, but it's secondary to the primary consideration, which is just, is it a day chart or is it a night chart? This is an additional thing that you can look at that also relates to sect, but it's not as important and it's not as crucial as the primary consideration. The other sect-related rejoicing condition is the connection between diurnal and nocturnal signs, where the masculine signs are said to be diurnal, and the, and the diurnal planets are said to prefer being placed in diurnal signs, and the uh, feminine signs are said to be nocturnal, and the nocturnal planets are said to prefer to be in nocturnal signs. So that's the other sect-related rejoicing condition. So because this is an introductory lecture, I want to really emphasize that these two sector-related rejoicing conditions are not as important as the primary consideration. And I need to get that across to you because usually when other people teach sect, especially early in the traditional revival, they taught all three of these considerations right away from the start, and they would treat them as if they were on par with each other or that each of the three was just as important as the other, and that's simply not the case. And in fact, one of my speculations is that it was the misapplication of these rejoicing conditions later in the tradition during the medieval and renaissance periods that eventually led to a decline in the use of sect as the tradition progressed. So basically, um, what happened is that at some point during the medieval tradition, the medieval astrologers started giving one point to each of these three conditions. So they would say, you get one point if you're a diurnal planet and it's in a diurnal chart, and then you get a second point if you're a diurnal planet that's in the top half of the chart in a day chart, and then you get a third point if you're a diurnal planet that's in a diurnal sign of the zodiac. And then they would add them all up, and if you had all three of them, then that was best. But the problem with this approach is that it treats all three of those conditions as if they're equal in power, but that is not the way that it was treated or presented at any point in the Hellenistic tradition. Additionally, it overlooks the fact that the primary consideration is the most important and most fundamental overriding condition and needs to be treated as 
the most important and placed above any of the rejoicing conditions. And that consideration is just, is it a day chart or is it a night chart? And if it's a day chart, then the diurnal planets are in power and the nocturnal planets are not in power. Versus if it's a night chart, then the nocturnal planets are in power and the diurnal planets are out of power. That's the most important consideration, and that's the one that I want everybody to walk away from this lecture understanding and using and applying, because really that's the one that's most important and most consistently useful. So the rejoicing conditions may alter some things in a very minor way, but they're really just not that important. And I think it's sort of a distraction that can lead people astray too much in this technique if you focus on those rejoicing conditions early on. Um, instead of just paying attention to what the primary consideration was. And I think that's why this technique eventually fell out of practice, because there was a misunderstanding about how important those considerations were at some point in the tradition, and that's why we eventually lost sect as a concept or as a technique. So um, Carolina says, let's say day chart, Mars conjunct the MC, it's in the upper part, so it's mitigated as a malefic, a little less malefic. Um, no, it would be the opposite. If it's a day chart, Mars, according to the rejoicing condition, would prefer to be um, below the horizon because it's a nocturnal planet. So it prefers to be on the opposite side of the sun from the sun if it's a nocturnal planet, basically. But again, I don't want to focus on that too much just because um people tend to like obsess about this and it becomes uh sort of more of a distraction than it is something that's useful so there's the rejoicing chart again diurnal planets preferring to be in the top half of the chart by day bottom half by night nocturnal planets preferring to be in the bottom half by day top half by night all right so um I have two example charts uh, for some mitigating conditions. They're kind of complicated, but I'll try to see if we can get through them. One of them is the birth chart of Aretha Franklin, who was the famous singer, famous musician. So she was born with Scorpio rising and the sun in Aries in the sixth whole sign house, which means that this is a night chart. She has Saturn in Taurus, in the seventh whole sign house in this night chart, so that's the most negative or most difficult planet in her chart. Whereas conversely, the most positive planet in her chart is Venus, which is in Aquarius in the fourth house. So just you know, basic delineation, we would expect relationships, seventh house to be the areas of greatest difficulty for her, and fourth house, which is like home and family and parents, to be the area of greatest ease. So it's complicated though because Venus and Jupiter are um, in a mutual reception, so they're each in each other's signs. So Venus is in Saturn's sign, which is Aquarius, and Saturn is in Venus's sign, which is Taurus. They have a mutual reception because Venus is actually applying to a square with Saturn while being in its sign, and Venus is also in the superior position in Aquarius, so it's overcoming and dominating Saturn, and therefore sort of forcing Saturn to be more positive than it might be otherwise and trying to 
mitigate or offset the negative placement in the seventh house with more positive significations to counteract Saturn's negative one in the seventh house. So what ended up happening is that she uh, was married twice in her lifetime, and both of those marriages ended in divorce. When she was much younger, she had two children with two different men as a teenager, but then the fathers didn't stick around. Later on, she married a much older man in 1961 who became her manager, but interestingly, her father was against the relationship, and she suffered dom domestic abuse during it and eventually divorced him in 1969. So I mentioned the father thing and the father interceding because it was actually interesting how her father became involved in and sort of interceded in her relationships and how the ruler of her seventh house is that Venus, which is in the fourth house, and the ruler of the fourth house is that Saturn that's in the seventh. And her father in some way like ended up in intervening or um, causing problems with basically her first marriage that eventually led to divorce, or at least being a contributing factor that led to that divorce. Um, later on, she had a third child during an affair with her road manager in 1970, and her second marriage in 196 was in 1978, almost a decade later, but they ended up splitting up in 1982 and eventually were divorced in 1984. So she was it's like she was having relationships in her life uh, with Saturn, despite Saturn being in the seventh house, because one of the things you have to remember is that when malefics are in a house, so let's say Saturn is in the seventh house, or even Mars to some extent, but especially Saturn, one of the things that Saturn will try to do sometimes is negate or say no to the topic of relationships. And that's one of the potentials if Saturn was in the seventh and a night chart, is it just saying, no, relationships will not occur, or no, this person will never be married, or something like that. Like imagine the most extreme scenario could be a person that never has a relationship for the entirety of their life or never gets married at any point in their life, let's just say hypothetically as the most extreme example. So even though Saturn was there, she didn't get that extreme because she was actually able to have relationships and was married twice. But what ended up happening is just that things didn't go very well and things never ended up lasting. But instead, these marriages and these relationships kept breaking off or kept having various problems with them at different points, which led them to eventually fail. Um, however, with the mitigations present and with Venus trying to offset what Saturn was doing, later on towards the end of her life, she did end up getting into a relationship that ended up being a long-term relationship um, that ended up being relatively happy and relatively healthy. And eventually, she announced plans to wed her longtime companion in 2012, but ended up calling off the wedding several weeks later. But they ended up still um, staying together and staying in that relationship all the way until, I believe, when she died, so that it ended up being this interesting um, sort of middle ground for her ended up being that she found a good relationship by the end of her life where she was hap relatively happy and that was relatively successful, but they just never ended up formalizing it into an official marriage um, by the end. But in the end, that ended up being okay, and that still ended up being a fulfilling relationship for her regardless. So 
that's an example of like um, the most negative planet in the chart being in the seventh house and struggling with that being an ongoing issue at different points in her life. But eventually, at some point through the mitigations, she still had relationships and still found periods of happiness and success in relationships, albeit briefly. And then eventually, towards the end of her life, found a relationship that stuck around, but she ended up just not formalizing it in order to sort of avert things in, in some sense, or that ended up being her almost like propitiation or way of getting around the Saturn in the seventh house was just never formalizing it as an official marriage in the end. So that's an example of a mitigated placement of having the most difficult placement in the house, that still being a very difficult area of her life, but it not being the worst case scenario and at different points having positive things happening there as well. Um, finally, here's a positive example of a mitigation where there's a positive placement that's being made better by a mitigation. So this was a chart of a doctor who eventually became the head of a hospital. They had Pisces rising with Jupiter ruling the ascendant and also ruling the midheaven, which is Sagittarius, and being placed in the sixth house of illness at 26 degrees of Leo, trining the degree of the midheaven at 24 degrees of Sagittarius. So with the ruler of the ascendant, the ruler of the tenth and the sixth house of illness, the native focused on illness which is like a sixth house topic, but they ended up focusing on it in a positive way through being a doctor. So that sixth house placement is not just mitigated by Jupiter being trying the degree of the midheaven at 24 Sagittarius, which is a major significant mitigating factor, but also this is a night chart with the sun in the third house. So Venus is the most positive planet in the chart, and it's in Taurus in a superior square overcoming Jupiter in Leo in the sixth house, so that Venus is sort of like encouraging Jupiter to be even more positive or more benefic than it would be otherwise. Because remember, because this is a um, night chart, Jupiter is not the most positive planet in the chart, but what we have here instead is Venus um, overcoming Jupiter as the most positive planet and forcing Jupiter to be even more positive than it would be otherwise. So it becomes a mitigating factor in the sense that it's like a compounding factor that makes something even better than it would be otherwise. Um, and that's that's the sense of a mitigation. There are situations where you can have a mitigating factor where you have a malefic that makes another malefic even worse than it would be otherwise, but I think I've done enough depressing chart examples for tonight, so I'll save that for another lecture. All right, where does that leave us? Other ways sect is useful. There's like a whole bunch of stuff I'm going to skip over and not get into for today. But sect is useful when you're studying transits because it can help you to identify which transits are going to be more difficult or more easy. Generally speaking, what I mean by that is people with day charts, um, Jupiter transits tend to be more positive for people with day charts. Whereas for people with night charts, Venus transits actually tend to be more positive for them. Um, sometimes people get bummed out by that when I say that because they're like, well, Venus transits are really fast, so that's kind of lame for people with night charts. But it actually works out due to the retrograde periods because what happens is when Venus slows down <clears throat> for those retrograde periods that last for 40 days and 40 nights, um, they end up staying in that sign for quite a long time. And 
it's those night chart people that tend to experience sometimes those Venus retrograde periods as more positive, especially if they're hitting a really crucial part of the person's chart. So it ends up working out well. Yeah, so day chart people, Jupiter transits better, night chart people, Venus transits better. Conversely, Jupiter transits are typically not as positive for people with night charts, and Venus transits typically are not as positive for people with day charts. So it helps to explain sometimes why one person might experience a Jupiter transit or a Venus transit as being particularly positive, whereas another person might look at that and say, I've never really had a super positive like Jupiter or Venus transit, so I don't know why that is. It partially has to do with sect. Uh, conversely, when it comes to the malefics, um, Mars transits tend to be more difficult for people with day charts, uh, whereas Saturn transits tend to be more difficult for people with night charts. So again, some people are like, well, that really sucks for night chart people because then that means when you get a heavy Saturn transit that lasts for a long time, like up to three years when Saturn is transiting through a single sign of the zodiac. That's true. However, conversely, it means when Mars goes retrograde for very long periods of time and stays in the same sign for six months, like it's doing this year when Mars is retrograde in Aries, it's really typically the day chart people that tend to get hit the hardest during those Mars retrograde period transits. And so it's during those times that if you're a night chart person, you sort of see what the downside is and you see what happens for people that have day charts and how negative Mars transits can sometimes be in those instances, whereas for people with night charts, Mars transits often tend to be more constructive and not, not as big of a deal, at least from a negative standpoint. So yeah, so people with night charts, more difficulty with Saturn transits, day charts, more difficulty with Mars transits. Conversely, people with day charts, um, Saturn transits tend to be a bit more constructive, whereas for people with night charts, um, Mars transits generally tend to be more constructive when you have them. So keep that in mind when you're studying transits. It's very useful for understanding how different transits are going to work out in different charts, just paying attention to the sect of the chart in general. Let's see, other things you can use sect for. Sect is also extremely useful as a filtering tool in electional astrology. So generally speaking, <clears throat> when, when you're doing electional astrology, you should emphasize the most positive planet in the chart based on sect, and you should try to downplay or mitigate the, the most negative planet in the chart based on sect. So for example, if you're going to do like a wedding election, let's say, and you know it's going to be during the day, then you might try to emphasize the planet Jupiter, which you know is going to be the most positive planet in that day chart, by putting it on the ascendant or putting it on the midheaven so that you've emphasized the most positive planet in that electional chart for that wedding. Conversely, if you're doing a day chart election for a wedding, you're really going to want to uh, avoid making Mars, which is the most negative planet, prominent. So you'd want to avoid putting Mars on the ascendant or putting Mars on the midheaven, for example. Um, I had somebody who tweeted at me today who said they were listening to a recent electional astrology episode that we did 
and they decided to go back and look at their wedding chart from a few years ago and they cast the chart and the chart had like a day chart with mars in the first house and she laughed and sort of exclaimed you know now i know why it's like 3 or 4 years later and we're getting a divorce and it didn't work out it was not a very good electional chart cuz i put mars like right on the ascendant in a day chart in an election and it was a funny like learning experience type thing and everybody is going to have experiences like that if you go back and look at event charts that you've done in the past when you weren't paying attention to electional astrology you'll start to see little things like that of the events that were really successful you'll tend to see the more positive planet being prominent in the chart based on sect whereas the events that were more difficult or not successful you'll t tend to see the most negative planet in the chart based on sect being more prominent so that's a really important rule to pay attention to from an electional standpoint and you'll see every month that we do the auspicious elections podcast or when we put out the most auspicious electional chart each month you'll see in every one of those charts that we're always trying to emphasize the most positive planet and we're trying to mitigate or downplay the most negative planet in whatever way that we can finally you can also use sect and identifying the most positive and negative planet when looking at synastry and relationship charts because you can sometimes see really crucial connections that are either very positive or very negative depending on how the most positive and negative planet in the chart are interacting with each other in different ways so sometimes that works out really positively like remember the example from the beginning of this lecture of the two the couple that got married and both of them had venus in cancer in a night chart uh, within a few degrees of each other and in their seventh houses and that ended up being a very positive indication for relationships and they ended up being married for 64 years successfully but imagine you know another scenario where the two people have the most difficult planet in the chart and it's in both of their seventh houses and it's conjunct that might not work out as well and instead they might instead of being attracted to each other or that keeping them together it might do the opposite and sort of repel them in some way or for some reason so you can also pay attention to sect when it comes to synastry as well and shakira laughs and says that she just had a relationship like that end what was the you had mars opposite each other's mars yeah that's a that's a tough one especially if you have day charts but even even for night charts that can be tense although sometimes a little bit more more constructive and your mars was in his seventh house yeah the, oh you both have day charts okay yeah that's really tricky the mars i have done that as well the mars opposite mars especially when it's close to degree in synastry and day charts can be really tricky because part of it is that then anytime something comes up and makes a hard aspect with one of your mars it's making a hard aspect with both of your mars at the same time and at the very least that's happening like four times a month anytime the moon conjoins one of your mars or squares or opposes one of your mars it's hitting both of them at the same time and it'll just like indicate like you know periods where you're getting into fights and, and difficulties and things like that the other side of that is that also longer term transits like if saturn comes up and stations on top of one of your mars then it's also opposing the other person's mars at the same time so that can be really tough now if it's mitigated if you have both like night charts and your mars's are conjunct or opposed 
that might not be as big of a deal because Mars is not going to be the most difficult planet in your charts. So that may be a little bit more negotiable, or you may be able to work through that in some way, or there may be some positive or constructive manifestation where maybe like you both do martial arts or something together, or you both do rock climbing or some athletic activity together. So therefore there's like a constructive outlet for it. That would be more expected if they were both night charts and had that connection. But if it's like day charts, it can sometimes be a little bit too too explosive or a little bit too volatile. All right, so those are some of the other ways that sect is useful. I believe I'm on my last slide, so it's time to wrap this up. So <clears throat> my concluding remarks are basically sect is obviously a very powerful tool. Um, it can be used to get additional information about a chart, like lots of additional information, even though it's such a simple technique. It's a simple technique, but it has major, um, major implications for how we interpret other techniques that just has this ripple effect in improving your delineation skills all the way across the board by giving you more information that's very practical and it's very useful. So this is one of the techniques that I like to teach modern astrologers, modern Western astrologers, because all it does is it complements techniques that you already know, and it modifies them to give you more information. It doesn't take away anything that you already do, but instead it just gives you additional information that can help to specify and help to narrow down the exact manifestation of certain placements, which is nothing but useful and helpful in improving your skills and your ability to read charts as an astrologer. So to me, sect really demonstrates the importance of looking back into the older texts to see what we lost, because it turns out that the past um, 2,000 years of the astrological tradition are not just this linear development of astrology where it's been improving and improving and improving all across the board, and we just would refine it and we kept we just got rid of techniques that didn't work but instead there were some techniques that worked that we just lost during the course of the transmission over the past 2000 years due to the faultiness in like the transmission of doctrines from language to language and culture to culture and sometimes when you would transmit astrology from one language to another some things would get lost and other things would get added and it wasn't always a very clean orderly process. So that's why it's important to go back and look and see if there's actually techniques like this that we're missing that can do things that we didn't really realize that we used to be able to do. So that's part of the purpose of going back into the past. And the, the what I like to say is that by looking back into the past, we can create a better astrology for the future. And that is not by going back into the past and like everybody you know, putting on togas and pretending that it's 2,000 years ago and just adopting entirely traditional techniques. But instead, the point is to go back into the past, see if there's anything interesting or useful that we forgot about, and then bring some of those best, the best techniques forward into the future and incorporate and synthesize them with some of the great techniques that we have in contemporary modern astrology from the 20, modern astrology from the 20th century. So it's in that sense that I think that by going back into the past, we create a better astrology for the future by synthesizing ancient techniques with modern ones. And I think sect is a major piece of that that I hope and I think that we've almost successfully revived 
in the past 30 years, and it's starting to finally gain mainstream acceptance again, once again today. So I think that's my presentation on sect tonight. Thanks everybody for joining me. Uh, if you'd like to learn <clears throat> more about any of this, of course, um, I have a book out which is called titled Hellenistic Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune. It was published in 2017. Um, it's got 600 pages or 700 pages of techniques just like this one and kind of an overview of ancient astrology, including a treatment of sect, a treatment of the rulers of the houses, benefics and malefics. I also go into timing techniques like annual perfections and zodiac releasing and tons of other stuff. You can find the book on Amazon or you can find links to like the ebook version or other things like that at hellenisticastrology.com slash book. Uh, there's a ver there's an ebook version on Google Books for I think like $10 or something like that. So it's pretty affordable if you just want an ebook version. And finally, I also teach, this is kind of kind of an old ad for it, but I also teach a comprehensive online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course through my online course site at theastrologyschool.com. So I've got over 100 hours of lectures just like this one on different facets of Hellenistic astrology. Um, and I go into hundreds of different chart examples just like I did in this lecture, except typically in those lectures I spend a lot more time like unpacking the chart examples and looking at them from different angles and really getting into the details of different techniques. So you can find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And that, my friends, is the end of this lecture. Here's my websites, hellenisticastrology.com, chrisbrennanastrology.com, and theastrologypodcast.com. Uh, thanks everybody for joining me for this tonight. Turned out to be a little bit longer of a lecture than I anticipated. I should have probably anticipated that, but here we are. My voice is failing me a little bit tonight. I think I remembered like 20 minutes into this lecture while I usually why I usually try to dialogue with somebody since my voice usually goes out after an hour or two. But thanks for joining me tonight. It was good having an audience, and I appreciated many of your questions. So thank you. Um, let me see if there's any questions here before we wrap this up. Uh, looks like they answered that one. If anybody has any questions, please let me know in the chat. Thank you. I appreciate it, everybody. Um, thanks to all the patrons for joining me tonight. I appreciate your um, support in doing the podcast. Sorry for getting this episode out kind of late. This is actually going to be the first episode of October, but I've got some other good episodes coming up. Uh, Kira and I are going to do an episode on Saturn generations of millennials that we're planning on recording on Wednesday, and I think that's going to be a great episode, so I look forward to doing that. And then we'll see what other episodes I get into later in the month. Uh, Drew asks, do you believe the sect of a planet is essential to understanding the nature of the planet itself? Um, I think that the planet itself represents and has an overarching archetype which contains you know, its own range of let's say hundreds of significations or thousands of significations. But what sect helps you to do is to narrow down um, some of the significations of that archetype. So it helps you to figure out what direction 
or to narrow down if a planet has like a hundred significations that depending on the sect of the chart, it's probably you can like eliminate 50 of those significations and instead it's less likely to be those 50 significations and more likely to be this 50 significations based on the sect of the planet in a specific chart. So it's like a, a specifying factor that helps you to narrow down the range of the manifestation of the significations of the planet. I think that's primarily what sect does, not in changing the fundamental nature of the planet so much, but instead it just constrains um, the range of significations of the planet in that specific chart. Not the sect in the chart, but the sect assignments themselves. I'm not sure if I understand what you mean. Um, no, Allison, we haven't done the we haven't scheduled the November forecast yet. We put it off because we knew there was going to be a lot of news and stuff happening this month, and we haven't even we're just getting ready to start the Mercury retrograde. So some of the crazy stuff's just getting ready to begin this month. Um so we're we're having a debate between pushing the forecast to as late in the month as we possibly can in order that most of the news and events of October have already happened and some of the different October surprises have already transpired so that we can already know that that's part of the context of the discussion or if we should do it early in order to get some of our predictions for November out early. I think we're kind of debating that right now. Um, trying to see if there's any other questions that Yeah, Khalid says, in Aretha Franklin's chart, Venus is one degree away from being struck with a backward ray by Saturn. Would you say that this weakens the advantage Venus has from being in the superior position? Yeah, it does, because that becomes a situation of hurling rays or casting rays of Saturn backwards at Venus, even though Venus is otherwise in the superior position. It probably would have been better if Venus was in the superior sign-based position without having a close degree-based aspect coming back from Saturn. The only thing that kind of helps out there is the fact that they're in a mutual reception, and I think that reception between the two helps to take some of the, the edge off of that square so that it could have been much worse than it was, even though she certainly experienced some major major issues and major setbacks in her life. Um, Taylor asks, this might sound silly, but I think Saturn, Jupiter, Sun, because they're big, and Venus, Mars, Moon, because they're small, is there an explanation for why Saturn and Jupiter are for the day and Mars and Venus are for the night? Um, I joined late, so I apologize if you explain this. I didn't explain that. Porphyry actually explains it, and if you're in the Hellenistic course, I would recommend going into, where is it? Somewhere in there. It might be in the configuration section. I recently added a translation of the definitions of Antiochus and Porphyry, which Levant Laszlo recently translated for his translation project. And he allowed me to put that translation out there as part of the Hellenistic course um, publicly. But in there, Porphyry does have an explanation about the basis of sect and how those assignments came about. And part of it, he says, has to do with how frequently the planets set under the beams of the sun versus how often they do not. And what he says is that <clears throat> Jupiter and Saturn do not frequently set under the beams of the sun, 
whereas Mars and Venus, because of their greater speed, do actually set under the beams of the sun more frequently. So it seems like um, part of the original conceptual distinction came about as a result of the notion of planets um, being under the beams of the sun being hidden and in some way almost like in darkened, and that being likened to the concept of night, where light is extinguished and is hidden, versus planets not being under the beams of the sun, being visible and being out there, uh, which is associated with um, light, and therefore, I guess, the daytime sect or the concept of being diurnal. So as long as Porphyry's accurately relaying the tradition, that seems to be part of it. And I'm not explaining it very clearly right now, but I recommend checking out that translation that Levant did of um, the chapter on sect in Porphyry and Antiochus, because he explains it in that chapter, and it's pretty interesting. All right. Best houses for Mars and Saturn in a wedding chart. I don't know if there's a good good um, answer to that. You just got to put them where you can put them, but try to make them less prominent, ideally. like Don't put them in angular houses, especially Mars in a day chart or Saturn in a night chart. Um, retrogrades are kind of a separate thing that would take a while to get into, so I don't want to get into it tonight, but maybe in another, another episode. All right. I think that's it for questions. All right. I think that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks everyone for joining me today. If you guys enjoyed this, I'll think about doing more episodes like this in the future as live streams. Thanks for everybody who joined me tonight and asked questions. I appreciate you. Thanks to all the patrons who support the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon. And thanks to all the students of the Hellenistic Astrology course who joined me tonight as well. If you have any questions, feel free to post them on the Facebook forum where I put this post. All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for watching or listening, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to the patrons who support the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons that are on our producers tier, such as Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, Thomas Miller, Bear River, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Christy Moe, and Sumo Kopic. Find out more about how to become a patron at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, thanks to our sponsors this month, which include the Astrogold Astrology app, available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and also the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting an online conference Find out more information at esar2020.org, as well as the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening May 27th through the 31st, 2021, and you can find out more information about that at norwac.net. Finally, the software we use here on the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, and it's available through alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.